Hi, everybody. Carla here. Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I'm so happy to be back with you after a bout with illness. I'm feeling so, so much better. You will probably notice in the readings that my voice isn't back 100%, but I think it's okay enough to get through it today, and I hope you enjoy the readings. Let me tell you quickly that these are stories by, they're mysteries written in 1967, I believe. So I'm taking you back to 1967. The, the author is is Donald J. Sobel, and these are two-minute mysteries. And I thought it would be kind of fun today to read the mysteries and then to give you an opportunity to try to figure out who done it. So again, the readings are very short, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes, and then I will give you the opportunity to pause the reading so that you can try to come up with uh, the answer as to who the guilty party may be. So um, again, I thought that would be fun just getting back into the swing of things here at Carla Reads the Classics. Now, if you're feeling a bit generous today, the cash app is Carla Reads and no amount is too small. If you use PayPal, it's Carla underscore J-O-H at yahoo.com. And let me also remind you that there is a merchandise store in the event you want a hoodie, a t-shirt, sticker, or something, phone cover, you know, that kind of thing. You can check out all of those things in the merchandise store. The links will be in the episode details. Now, one other things, one other thing that I would ask uh, is for you to answer the poll uh, accompanying this reading. And what I'm trying to do is to get an idea. I'm trying to gauge what next to bring you, what it is that you would like to hear here at Carla Reads the Classics. So please do take a minute to answer the poll. I would really appreciate it. And please enjoy today's readings. Please stay tuned. The Case of the Angry Chef Hawkins, the Marine, stared in amazement at Inspector Winters. I never heard of a restaurant called Pasquale's Pizzeria, he objected. I wasn't ever in it. I didn't rob it, and I certainly didn't shoot anybody. A Marine answering your description wounded the owner and cleaned out the cash register, said the inspector. You didn't know? Am I supposed to? protested Hawkins. There must be several thousand Marines in this town. But only one was running along 42nd Street five minutes after the holdup, snapped the inspector. Sure, I ran, retorted Hawkins. Look, I was standing idly in a doorway, wondering what to do when this fat guy wearing a white apron and chef's hat comes charging at me. He's waving a butcher knife and he's screaming. He shot the boss. So I ran. You were innocent, but you ran? He had that big knife. Then what did you do? A cop saw us and grabbed me. It wasn't any use to argue. So I went back to the restaurant with the cop, and a couple of customers said I might be the Marine who held up the place. They weren't sure. That night, Halegian read the transcript of the questioning. Hawkins is your man, he said. No mistake about it. How did Halegian know? You might want to pause now for the answer, which is... Hawkins asserted he'd never heard of the restaurant or been in it. If true, he could not have gone back to it, as he said. A fatal slip of the tongue. This next one is called The Case of the Attempted Murder. 
Jack Alden's account of the attempted strangling of Mrs. McHenry is pretty far-fetched, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian. Yet he passed a lie detector test. Alden drives a delivery truck for the best cleaners, explained the inspector. At five minutes before noon Tuesday, he drove to the McHenry house and stopped the truck in the driveway. He spent about two minutes filling out his delivery reports for the morning. Then he got out with a dress and two suits. As he closed the cab door, he noticed his front wheels were parked on the garden hose, which ran from an outlet by the garage around to the back of the house. Alden claims he got back into the truck and drove forward a few feet so that his engine was in the McHenry empty garage. Here he noticed the door between the kitchen and the garage was open. He saw Mrs. McHenry lying on the floor by the stove. He rushed to her, he says, and was trying to revive her when Mr. McHenry came through the open door of the garage. McHenry had taken the day off to water his back garden. He had been hosing down his flower bed and hedges for about half an hour when he noticed the truck in his garage. He walked over to investigate. We can't get McHenry concluded the inspector, to state definitely whether he thinks Alden was trying to throttle his wife or to revive her. No wonder the lie detector test didn't trap Alden, said Halegian. Why not? Well, for the answer, if you want to pause, it's because Alden told the truth. Halegian deduced that McHenry, while throttling his wife, had been surprised by the arrival of the delivery man and had hurried to the backyard and his alibi of hosing his garden. Had he been there all the time, he would have investigated why the water stopped flowing. The truck wheels were parked on the garden hose for about two minutes, remember? And now for the next one. This is called The Case of the Attic Suicide. Motoring through Ash City, Dr. Halegian decided to stop in on his old friend, Carl Mesner. At Mesner's home, he was shocked to learn that three days earlier, his friend had hanged himself. Carl Mesner was in excellent health and spirits when I heard from him last month, Halegian told the sheriff. I can't believe he committed suicide. He did. I investigated it myself, replied the sheriff. Here's all there is to the case. Archie Carter, Mr. Medner's, Mr. Messner's manservant, was returning to the house late that night when he noticed a light in the attic. As Carter got out, got out of his car, he saw through the open attic window Mr. Mesner knotting a rope around his neck. The other end of the rope was tied to a rafter. Then Mr. Mesner calmly kicked away the small stool he was standing on, and that was it. Carter found the house doors locked. He had forgotten his key, so he ran to a neighbor and telephoned me. He reported to me exactly what I've told you, said the sheriff. When I got out to the Messner house, I, I had to force the door. Then Carter and I dashed up three floors to the attic. Mr. Messner was dead. The coroner has no doubt said that death was from hanging. The attic door was clear except for the little stool that lay overturned by the door and a broken clay jug that must have been hit by the stool, concluded the sheriff. I'd like to go out to the house again, said Halegian. From what you've told me of Carter's story, he's lying. 
How did Helegian know? You might want to pause here for the answer. And the answer is, Archie Carter claimed he saw Carl Mesner kick a small stool from under him. However, standing on the ground, Carter could never have seen a small stool through the attic window three stories above him. Now, on to the next mystery, and this one is called The Case of the Balloon Man. The whole force is looking for Izzy the Balloon Man who kidnapped little Dennis Farrell, Inspector Winter said to Dr. Halegian. Doesn't anyone know where Izzy hangs out? Nobody knows anything about him, replied the inspector. Once a week, he stops his old truck by the Farrell estate and gives out popcorn and mouse-shaped pink balloons. The kids love the funny faces he makes as he puts the balloons to his lips and huffs and puffs. Last Thursday, Izzy made his usual stop and drove off, or so it appeared. Later, Sam Potts and the Reverend Bevan were in Sam's backyard, which abuts the feral property. Sam noticed one of Izzy's balloons stuck high in his oak tree. Since there was no high wind to blow it loose, Sam got a long ladder and climbed into the tree. From that height, about 20 feet, he could see over the feral's 12-foot wall. Sam says that as he released the balloon, he glanced into the feral's yard and saw the balloon man put young Dennis into his truck and drive off. He told the minister what he'd seen. Neither man thought much of it till they heard that Dennis was missing. Yesterday, concluded the inspector, Dennis's father received a note stating that Dennis was being held for ransom and that instructions would follow. Putting together everything you've told me, said Halegian, I think both Dennis and the balloon man may have been kidnapped. Why? And you might want to pause here for the answer, which is, Halegian realized Sam Potts had used the innocent clergyman to confirm a tale of kidnapping which never occurred as he reported it. Potts had obviously stuck the balloon high in the oak as a prop. On a day without a wind, the balloon blown up by breath could never rise high into a tree. Now, that one was difficult for me. I didn't get it. But in any event, let's move on to the next one. And this one is called The Case of the Bamboo Fence. Now, this here place said the bandy-legged little guide, is Dead Man's Creek, being so named for the tragedy in 98. Dr. Halegian and the other dudes on the Wild West tour gazed blankly upon a muddy stream. Doc Holloway's cabin stood right there, continued the guide. I guess Doc was the most popular fellow in these parts. Well, one afternoon, Doc is patching up a peddler when Jim Sterling busts in. Jim says he was in town when a lone desperado with a pair of fancy six-shooters cleaned out the bank. In all the fuss and shooting, Jim is mistaken for the gunman and has to hightail it to save his hide. The bandit done dropped one of his sixes, says Jim. If and I ever see the mate, I'll have me the real culprit. There was no time for playing detective just then. A posse was coming. Doc believed Jim was innocent, and so he puts on Jim's shirt and hat. 
dock figures to lead the passe off long enough for Jim to escape. After giving his patient, the peddler, to keep his mouth shut, Doc cuts a length of rail about six feet long from his bamboo fence. He tells Jim to sit in the creek and breathe through the hollow bamboo, which is maybe as big around as a two-bit piece. Then Doc rides Jim's horse away and the posse follows. Later, Jim is cleared, but it ain't no good. Jim is dead, drowned in the creek. The peddler fished him out an hour after Doc decoyed the posse. Doc reckoned poor Jim panicked underwater and drowned. He didn't panic, corrected Halegian. He was murdered. How did Halegian know? Well, pause for the answer, which is breathing through a tube six feet long and as big around as a two-bit piece, Jim would have passed out promptly. He would have been breathing in the same air that he had just expelled, air without oxygen, a simple medical fact Doc Holloway certainly knew. And the next one is called The Case of the Big Deal. Dr. Halegian had just ordered a drink at the bar in the Las Vegas motel when a lean young stranger with sun-bleached golden hair and tan cheeks took the stool beside him. After asking for a gin and tonic, the sunburned young man nodded toward the gaming tables. Name's Clive Vance, he said genially. It's sure great to be back in civilization and hear money talking out loud. The famous sleuth introduced himself. I take it you've been out on the desert? Got back yesterday, said Vance. Washed the dust out of my ears, had a real live barber shave off seven months of whiskers and trim this mop of wheat. Then I bought a whole wardrobe on credit. All I had to show was my assay, was my assay report. Boy, am I ever ready to celebrate. You found gold? Right you are. Hit pay dirt. Van stroked his bronze chin thoughtfully. He lowered his voice confidentially. Listen he said. If I can find a backer, I'll take enough out of those bills, out of those hills, to buy 10 pleasure palaces like this one. Of course, he added apologetically, I'm not trying to interest you, doctor. Still, if you know somebody who'd like to get in on a sure thing, let me know. I'm staying in room 210. Can't give out details here, you understand. I understand said Halegian, that you'd better improve your story if you want to part some sucker from his money. What was wrong with Vance's story? Pause for the answer, which is, Vance claimed he had a barber shave off seven months of whiskers the day before, yet his cheeks were tanned and his chin was bronzed. Had he really been in the sun seven months without a shave, his skin would have shown white where his whiskers grew. That one wasn't so difficult. On to the next one, and this one is called The Case of the Bitter Drink. Notwithstanding the 110 degree heat, the 50 American tourists seemed to have arrived in the Mexican in the Mexican village at a lucky time. The initiation of the village youth to manhood was underway, the tour guide announced. 
A young man came jogging into the village. Sweating profusely, he sat down under a shade tree. Another villager fed him ice, wiped him dry, and massaged his neck and shoulders. The tour guide took a wooden cup from the local elder. Now comes the final test, said the guide. The youth, having just completed a 40-mile run, must drink this cup of bitterest potion without changing expression. The guide offered the cup to the tourists. Three men sipped it and instantly gagged violently. The guide talked quickly, and soon the Americans were making large wagers with him that the youth would not pass the drinking test. Dr. Halegian, one of the tourists, never took his gaze from the cup, which passed to the youth undisturbed. The youth drained it without batting an eye. You and the villagers have a neat con game here, Halegian told the guide but I advise you to refund all bets or I shall notify the district police. How are the tourists cheated? And pause for the answer, which is the taste buds of the youth's tongue had been anesthetized by the ice fed to him. That was a good one. And now this one is called the case of the blackmailer. I don't mind telling you, Dr. Halegian, said Thomas Hunt, that inheriting the Hunt millions has had, has had its nerve-wracking moments. Do you remember Martin, the gardener? A smiling and bowing little chap, said Halegian, pouring his young friend a brandy. That's the fellow. I dismissed him upon inheriting the house in East Hampton. Well, three days ago, he came to my office, bowing and smirking, and demanded $100,000. He claimed to have been tending the spruce trees outside my father's study when dad drew up another will naming his brother in New Zealand sole heir. You believed him? I confess the news hit me like a thunderbolt. Dad and I had quarreled over Veronica sometime during the last week in November. Dad opposed the marriage and it seemed plausible that he had cut me off. Martin asserted he possessed the second will, which he felt sure would be worth a good deal more to me than he was asking. As it was dated November 31, the day after the executed will, it would be legally recognized, he claimed. I refused to be blackmailed. He tried to bargain, asking 50000 and then 25000 You paid nothing, I hope, asked Halegian. I paid with my foot firm on the seat of his pants. Quite right, approved Halegian. Imagine trying to peddle a tail like that. What was Martin's blunder? And pause here for the answer. And the answer is no legal will could be dated November 31. November contains only 30 days. That was an easy one, right? Okay, on to the next one. And this one is called The Case of the Bogus Robbery. Since she was the richest woman in New, in New York City, Mrs. Sidney had gratified every whim but one. She had never confounded Dr. Halegian. So Halegian knew that the game of Stump the Detective had commenced again when at two o'clock in the morning he was summoned from the guest room of Mrs. Sidney's Fifth Avenue mansion by the butler who announced, Madam's jewels have been stolen. 
Entering Mrs. Sidney's bedroom, the famed sleuth closed the door and swiftly surveyed the scene. The French windows were open. To the left of the disordered bed stood an end table with a book and two candles. The candles had burned down to three inches, spilling all their drippings down the side facing the door. A bell, a bell cord lay on the thick green carpet. A drawer on the vanity table was open. What happened? inquired Helegian. I was reading in bed by candlelight when the door blew open, said Mrs. Sidney. As you perhaps felt, a strong draft comes in. I pulled the bell cord for James the butler to come shut the door. Before he arrived, a masked man with a gun entered and forced me to tell him where I kept my jewels. As he scooped them into his pocket, James entered. The thief bound him with the bell cord and tied my hands and legs with these, she said, holding up a pair of stockings. As he departed, I asked him to have the decency to close the door. He merely laughed and deliberately left it open. It took James 20 minutes to work free and release me. I shall have a beastly cold in the morning, concluded Mrs. Sidney. My compliments, said Helegian, on a nicely staged crime, with the fallacy fairly displayed. What was the fallacy? And pause for the answer. And the answer is, the candle spilled all their drippings down the side facing the door. Had the door really been left open as long as was claimed, some wax would have dripped on the opposite side away from the draft. And the next one is called The Case of the Broken Arm. A knowledge of human behavior is often the explanation behind the criminologist's seemingly fantastic deductions, said Dr. Halegian. A case in point was the murder of Roger Duffy, faked to look like suicide, said Halegian. Want to hear about it? Can we order dinner first, said Octavia. Halegian smiled indulgently and continued. Duffy's body was found at 8 p.m. slumped on a park bench, a bullet in his left temple. His right arm encased in a cast from fingertips to elbow since an accident a month before lay on his lap. His left hand clutched a 32 pistol. Called to the scene and estimating that death had occurred about 7 p.m., I deduced from the contents of his pockets that he had been murdered in his bathroom and transported to the park. Astonishing, you gasp. Not at all. Since I realized Duffy's clothes had been put on after his death, it seemed logical that he was undressed at the time of death. The hour pointed to an evening bath. Traces of blood in his bathroom confirmed my theory. Now, you ask, what was in his pockets that proved murder, not suicide? His right trouser pocket held $4 bills clipped together and... 52 cents in coins. His left trouser pocket had a handkerchief and cigarette lighter. His left hip pocket held his wallet. Surely you can see where the murderer made his mistake, concluded Helegian. Yes, killing Duffy on an empty stomach, said Octavia, filling up on water. Who can think clearly when he's hungry? I give up. Do you? Pause for the answer. And the answer is, from the contents of Duffy's right-hand trouser pocket, Halegian realized Duffy had not dressed himself. 
With his right arm encased in a cast from fingertips to elbow, he could not have fished into his right-hand trouser pocket. His right-side pocket would have been empty instead of containing commonly used articles, such as money. Okay, and the next one is called The Case of the Bronze Nymph. But, you know, before I go on, I have to say, uh, these mysteries, as I, as I read them the first time, reminded me so much of the Perry Mason episodes. I don't know if you watch Perry Mason, but as a child, Perry Mason was always on in the house and I never, ever watched an episode. It was just kind of always in the background. My, my mother watched it and she loved it. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe about six, eight months ago that I said, you know, I, I want to watch this. Let me just watch one episode of Perry Mason. And I couldn't stop watching them. They were so good. And it just took me back to a different time, took me back to my childhood, even though I'd never watched an episode, I could always hear it. And that wonderful music in the beginning and just, you know, the whole thing just set off memories of my childhood. But I digress. And in any event, let's continue with Sobol's Two Minute Mysteries. And this one is called The Case of the Bronze Nymph. All the lights were out in the house last night when I heard a scuffling. I jumped out of bed to investigate and saw someone dash from my wife's room and race downstairs. Russell Everin told Inspector Winters. I gave chase. The intruder ran into the back porch where we keep a yellow insect like burning all night. And I recognized Jim Simmons. That's a lie, shouted Simmons. Jim ran about a hundred yards, continued Efren, Everin, unruffled. Then he threw something away. It struck several times on the rocky slope to the ravine, tracing its path into the darkness with a series of little sparks. Unfortunately for you, Mr. Simmons, said the inspector. Mr. Everin was able to lead us right to the spot after he discovered his wife dead, and we found this. The inspector held up a bronze statuette of a nymph. Another hour, and the hard rain that fell might have washed away all clues. The blood and hair found on the base match Mrs. Everin's. The lab got one good print, your forefinger. I wasn't near the house, protested Simmons. Everin telephoned me early in the evening and told me he wanted to speak with me at my apartment at eight o'clock. He never showed. I stayed there until midnight, went out for a beer, and then hit the sack. As for the fingerprints, why, I handled that statuette while visiting the Everins two days ago. That night, the inspector told Dr. Halegian, Everin and Simmons are business partners who don't get along. Neither does Everin's attempt to frame Simmons replied Halegian. Why not? Pause here for the answer. And the answer is that Everin claimed the something thrown by Simmons, which turned out to be a bronze nymph, the alleged murder weapon, struck sparks on the rocky slope, marking its path. Impossible. Bronze, an anti-friction metal widely used in olden days for cannon, cannot strike sparks on rock. And the next one is called The Case of the Bumped Head. The express train running between New York and Los Angeles had to back up outside Chicago. 
Alas, the engineer stopped the train too suddenly while in reverse. Passengers tumbled like tenpens, incurring several suits against the railroad. The stop happened at 9 p.m., said Mills, the railroad's insurance man, while discussing the incident with Dr. Halegian. Mills related the biggest headache. Ted Sheldon, a passenger who was suing for $100,000. At 8 p.m., said Mills, Sheldon had the porter make up his berth and the last car. He claims he had just retired for the night when the stop occurred. He says he was so forcefully jerked that his head struck the wall behind his pillows. Because of terrific head pains, he says, he left the train at Chicago, concluded Mills. He showed Halegian a Chicago doctor's affidavit that Sheldon had suffered a skull fracture. You think Sheldon hurt his head somewhere else? Asked the sleuth. If I can't disprove his story about hitting his head in the Pullman berth, the company is going to have to settle. You won't have any trouble, said Halegian. Why not? Pause for the answer if you care to. As all Pullman berths are made up with the head toward the front of the train, Sheldon, jerked by a train stopping while moving backward, would have banged his feet, not his head. And this one is called The Case of the Buried Treasure. From the gleam in your eye, I deduce you are about to get rich quick, said Dr. Halegian. Clever of you, old chap said Bertie Tilfold, a young Englishman with a superiority complex toward work. If I had a mere 10,000, I should realize a fortune. Have you 10? What's the game now? demanded Halegian. Pieces of eight among the corals? Doubloons from kids' chest? Bertie opened a sack and triumphantly produced a shining silver candlestick. Sterling silver, he sang. See what's engraved on the bottom? Halegian upended the candlestick to read the name Lady North. Wasn't that the ship that sank in 1956? The Lady North sank, but not with all hands as is generally believed, replied Bertie. Four men got away with a fortune in loot before the ship capsized in the storm. They hid their loot in a cave, continued Bertie, but the storm started an avalanche and sealed off the entrance, burying three of the sailors inside. The fourth, a chap named Pembrute, escaped. Pembrute's been trying to raise 10000 to buy the land on which the cave is located. You put up the money, the cave is opened, and the loot is divided two ways instead of four. Enchanting, said Dr. Halegian. Only how do you know Pembrute, Pembrute isn't a swindler? Earlier tonight, he took me to the cave, said Bertie. I nearly sprained my ankle on it. I took one look and brought the candlestick here nonstop. You've got to agree, it's the real thing, old chap. It is, ad admitted Halegian, and there's no doubt that Pembrute planted it by the cave for your benefit. How did Halegian know? Well, here's the answer. If the sterling silver candlestick had been lying in a sack since 1956, it would have been tarnished, not shining. That one was kind of easy, right? And this one is called The Case of the Cave Paintings. By Jove, this time I'm going to make us both rich, exclaimed Bertie Tilford, the unemployed Englishman with more get-rich-quick schemes than tail feathers on a turkey farm. He paused dramatically, eyeing Dr. Halegian. 
You've heard of the caveman paintings in the cave of Pont de Gaume, France? He resumed. Well, my associate, Sebastian del Solo, has found the greatest ever example of prehistoric art in a cave on a farm in Spain. Of course, went on Bertie, I can't divulge the exact location yet, but we can buy the farm with the cave for a mite, dear boy. The farmer suspects nothing. Think of the fortune from tourists. Bertie passed three photos to Helegian. Behold, Sebastian pushed past subterranean water channels as far down as 4,000 feet to photograph those drawings. The first photo was of a drawing of a woolly rhinoceros, the second of hunters attacking a dinosaur, the third of a charging mammoth. The cave artist worked by light from a stone lamp filled with fat and fitted with a wick of moss, explained Bertie. He used pieces of red and yellow ochre for drawing and ground them and mixed them with animal fat for painting. How much to buy the farm? asked Helegian darkly. An American, $50,000, said Bertie. But you can have a third share of everything for a mere 10000 A third of nothing, you mean, corrected Helegian. I won't give you a nickel. Why not? Pause for the answer, which is the drawing of hunters attacking a dinosaur was obviously a fake. Man did not appear till millions of years after the dinosaurs had died out and probably did not even suspect their existence. And the next one here is called the case of the dead boxer. Tony Cerrone's worldly possessions were laid out on a small table in police headquarters. They consisted of a t-shirt, sneakers, and white cotton trousers. In a pocket of the trousers was a card. The card read, July 28, your weight, 173 pounds, your fortune, you will enjoy a long life. His life lasted 22 years, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian. Late last night, said the inspector, we got a call to come to the carnival. Somebody had started up a Ferris wheel. We found a male corpse jackknifed over a strut. At first, I thought the guy had been beaten to death. His face was so battered. Then I recognized Tony. Last night, Tony fought Kirby Malone for the state middleweight title, he continued. Tony took a pounding. We know he left the arena still pretty dazed. He must have come out to the carnival. He used to be a roustabout, and he knew his way around. It looks like he got here after closing, said the inspector, used the scale, and then started up the big wheel. He took a ride and fell out. The medical examiner says he died instantly. The famed criminologist contemplated Tony's possessions. He might have been killed elsewhere and hung on the strut, said Helegian. I heard rumors of a fix in the Malone fight. It looks to me like Tony refused to take a dive, and the mob made him pay the full price. The killers apparently did a clumsy job. To avoid giving themselves away, they changed his clothes and staged the scene out at the Ferris wheel. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer, which is Tony could not have gained 13 pounds in a day. He fought on the night of his death for the state middleweight 160-pound title. 
When found, he had on someone else's clothing, for the card in his pocket gave his body weight as an impossible 173 pounds. And this next one is called The Case of the Coin Collector. Death, Dr. Halegian, ascertained quickly, had been inflicted by a blunt instrument within the past half hour. He carefully rolled the body of his old friend, Hugh Clark, on its back. Something glinted within the red carnation in Clark's lapel. Halegian recognized the object instantly. A gold stator of Croesus, a rare coin. The sleuth replaced the coin in the carnation, rolled the body to its original position lying face down on the floor, and thoughtfully regarded the pockets, which were all turned inside out. He was examining the kitchen of the dead man's three-room bachelor apartment when Clark's nephew, Jim Mims, entered. Uncle Hugh is lying dead in the living room. What happened, Dr. Halegian? cried the young man. Halegian handed Mems an open canister of flour to hold while he picked out the one marked T. Your uncle, he said to Mems, telephoned me this morning and asked me to come right over. He was planning to take a rare coin downtown for sale and wanted me along. Apparently somebody arrived first. I found the door open and slugged your uncle to death. The killer searched the body but found nothing because your uncle didn't put the coin in his pocket. Halegian paused to set a kettle of water on the stove. You might bring the coin to me. It's buried in the flour. Young Mims put down the canister he was holding and left the kitchen. In a moment, he was back with the coin taken from the carnation. How deeply are you mixed up in this murder? snapped Halegian. How come? Pause for the answer. Mems proved he was involved by taking the coin from the carnation, which he couldn't see because the body was lying face down on the floor. Had he been innocent, he would have assumed when Halegian said the coin was buried in the flower, that it was buried in the flower, in the canister of flour he was holding. This one is called The Case of the Dead Broker. The corpse of Winthrop Parita sat facing on the ocean on the deserted end of the boardwalk at Lido Beach, slumped to the right against the arm of the stone bench. From the bullet wound in the center of the forehead, dried blood descended in a solid line down the right side of the face, staining his white collar and blue-dotted gold tie. A trash collector discovered the body at eight this morning, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian. Death occurred between midnight and two this morning, said Halegian. He studied the pistol on the boardwalk. You're convinced it's suicide? Parida's been despondent over the recent failure of his brokerage firm, replied the inspector. Last night, he attended a party. Afterward, the whole group drove out here in several cars to eat hot dogs at Benny's. It turned cold and a windstorm arose that didn't let up till dawn. Around 11 p.m., Parita excused himself and went outdoors. His friends got worried about him, but after waiting till 1 a.m., they figured he had gone home alone in his car. So they all returned to the city about 2 a.m. This wasn't the first time Parita had moodily walked out of, uh, walked out of a party in the past few weeks, concluded the inspector but nobody suspected he'd ever take his own life. 
He didn't, said Helegian. How did Helegian know? Pause for the answer. Had Perita shot himself on the bench during the windstorm, the blood from the wound would not have descended in a solid line down his face. The wind would have smeared it all over his face and spattered it on his clothing. Hence, Helegian knew he was killed somewhere else and the suicide faked. This next one is called The Case of the Dead Frenchman. The body of Yves du Motier was found in the bedroom of the apartment belonging to Silas Howe, the coin collector. Du Motier had been stabbed to death with a letter opener. The body lay four feet from the rumpled bed. Death occurred at about 8.30 a.m. or half an hour before the body was discovered, Inspector Winters told Helegian. I telephoned Silas Howe, who has been in Philadelphia attending a numismatics convention. He says that last month he brought Dumortier, a French coin collector, and an old friend from France for an operation to restore Dumortier's hearing. The way it looks, somebody used a skeleton key to get into Howe's apartment and tried to steal his rare coins. Dumortier must have awakened, seen the intruder, and in the struggle was slain. The safe where Howe kept his coins, was unopened. No coins are missing as far as we can tell. Who notified the police? inquired Helegian. James Wilkes, a neighbor in the apartment house. Wilkes was on his way to work when he saw Howe's door open and hearing the alarm clock ringing, investigated. He found the Frenchman dead on the floor. When did Howe leave for Philadelphia and who can verify his presence there? asked Helegian. He left three days ago, said the inspector. We contacted his hotel manager, who swears Howe was in and out on each of the past three days. Say, I see what you're getting at. Whom did Helegian suspect? Pause for the answer, which is Wilkes, who claimed to have been attracted by the ringing of the alarm clock, a fatal slip since Dumortier, who was deaf, would not have set the alarm. This next one is called The Case of the Dead Judge. Who are you? demanded Dr. Helegian of the sallow stranger who answered the doorbell at Judge Casper's residence. I'm Bernard Mitchell, Judge Casper's new law clerk, was the blurted answer. The judge just killed himself. The sallow man led Helegian into the den. Judge Casper lay slumped across his desk. Gripped in his left hand was a thirty-two revolver. His right hand rested on the desk beside a note. Dr. Helegian read, Since giving Arthur Brennett a suspended sentence, I have been the target of a defaming whispering campaign. I do not have the strength to keep asserting that I was not bought off. Were I younger, I should fight this libel. But for that, I do not possess enough strength. Said Mitchell, the judge had been under attack since he let off Brennett, the influence peddler, so lightly last year. Somebody started rumors that he'd been bribed. The remarks were libelous, and I kept urging him to sue. But he said he, said he was too old for a fight. Helegian completed his examination of the bullet wound. He's been dead only a few minutes. Did you hear a shot? Yes, 
I dashed in here and found him already dead. How long have you been the judge's law clerk? Only a week. Well, you'd better come with me to the police, said Helegian. They'll want to hear your alibi. Why did Helegian suspect Mitchell? Please pause for the answer, which is Helegian knew Mitchell wasn't a law clerk. He and the judge's suicide note misused an elementary legal term to describe the defaming rumors, libel, published statement, instead of the proper word slander, which is a spoken statement. Now, the next one is called The Case of the Dead Millionaire. I see Willie Vanswell just reached his 21st birthday, said Inspector Winters, looking up from his newspaper. Tomorrow he gets 10 million his father left him. Didn't the old man commit suicide 20 years ago? asked Dr. Halegian. Yes, replied the inspector, and there was always something that puzzled me about the case. Edgar Van Svelt shot himself below the heart. The bullet passed upward, piercing the heart all right. Death was instantaneous, but why did he aim like that? Upward. Another thing, no suicide note. Nobody was in the house when he died. I've got a picture of the scene, though. The inspector drew a manila folder from his files and picked out a glossy print. It showed Edgar Vansvelt dead, his body seated in the kitchen, had fallen across the kitchen table. His right hand, still clutching the gun, rested on the table close beside the back of his head. The cook discovered the body upon returning from the market, continued the inspector. She claims she telephoned the police promptly. When our photographer snapped this, it was 1 a.m. Edgar had been dead approximately six hours. Halegian studied the 20-year-old photograph. Then he inquired, how tall was Edgar? Five feet eight, but long-legged, so that when he sat down, he appeared much shorter, answered the inspector. Then I should say there can be no doubt that he was murdered, announced Halegian. How did Halegian reach his conclusions? Pause for the answer, which is, had Vansfeldt shot himself from below the heart while seated, he must have held the gun close to his lap. Since death was instantaneous, it would have been impossible for him, a short-bodied man, to have lifted the hand with the gun until it rested on the table after shooting himself. Well, that one I didn't quite get. I don't know about you. But anyway, on to the next one. And this is called The Case of the Dead Professor. I heard a shot as I was sorting the silverware, said Mrs. Grumman, the housekeeper. When I entered the study, Professor Townsend was like, like that. Seated at his desk was Reginald Townsend, chairman of the English department at Overton University. Halegian studied the position of the body, which had sagged against the left arm of the leather swivel chair. The bullet had entered the right temple, a thirty-eight caliber, double-action 1875 army revolver lay in Townsend's lap. On the desk was a note apparently signed by Reginald Townsend. Halegian read, After having spoken with Dinker this morning, I have decided not to delay. I do what I must. Not even you, dearest Kay, can know the bottomless despair of being compelled to retire. Too old 
to fully understand, one must have taught 35 years as I have. Ahead is nothing. Farewell. I love you. Who are Dinker and Kay? inquired Halegian. Dinker is Paul Dinkerton, presiding president of the university, replied the housekeeper. Kay is Mrs. Townsend. She was called out of town suddenly. She left about 10 this morning. Who are Professor Townsend's heirs? Mrs. Grumman hesitated. Why, it is generally believed that Mrs. Townsend and I will share equally. Even if Professor Townsend was murdered? Why did Halegian reject suicide? Pause for the answer, which is, the suicide note was an obvious phony. The chairman of the English department would never have committed two grammatical sins, a redundant phrase and a split infinitive. He would have written, having spoken, instead of after having spoken, and to understand fully, instead of to fully understand. I like that one. This next one is called The Case of Death at Sunrise. Inspector Winters raised the tattered window, raised the tattered window shade, pardon me, letting morning light into the dingy room of Nick the Nose. In the courtyard, four stories below, policemen were gathered around the shattered body of a young woman. Let's hear it again, the inspector said to Nick. Nick, who hadn't sold one of his phony tips to the police in months, shifted nervously. About sunrise, I'm sitting in this chair reading the racing form, began the greasy little informer. I got the insomnia, see? Suddenly, I hear scuffling, and I see, and I see Mrs. Clark. She lives right across the court on the fourth floor. Well, she's struggling with the man in a uniform. He gives her a shove toward the window, and whammy, out she goes. The first thing I think of is you. Maybe you'll figure it's suicide instead of murder. So I run down to the drugstore and telephone you. I stayed with the body till we came up here just to keep everything like it was for you. Nick licked his lips. I seen the killer's face. I figure I can identify him or at least tell you what kind of uniform he had on. That ought to be worth something. It is. This, growled the inspector, delivering his foot to the seat of Nick's pants. Quite the appropriate payment, commented Halegian when he heard of Nick's latest attempt at a payday. Why did Nick get the boot instead of cash? Well, the inspector surmised that Nick had discovered the body while entering the building and concocted the murder angle for a buck. He couldn't have seen from the window of his room what he described. The shade was drawn, remember? And this next one is called The Case of the Death Plunge. While browsing in the professional photographer's exhibition, Dr. Halegian stopped to admire a striking photograph in the flash gun category entitled Death Plunge. The print showed a small girl touching a lighted match to a Christmas candle. Beside the candle stood a pile of gifts. The girl was blonde, pug-nosed, adorable. But what made the photograph spellbinding was the second figure. It was a woman, back to camera, falling past the picture window just behind the little girl. The caption read, The remarkable shot was taken August 24 at 9.30 p.m. by Bertram Kennedy in his Brooklyn studio apartment. 
At the moment Mr. Kennedy took the picture, Mrs. Claire Gramelin was falling from the roof six stories above. Her body, stopped in mid-air, produced this startling backdrop for what was intended as a Christmas cover of Family Times magazine. It is believed Mrs. Gramelin, who weighed only 90 pounds, lost her footing in the storm winds, which reached 40 miles an hour that night. She died upon striking the sidewalk. Halegian finished reading as a group of officials moved in his direction. One of the men held a blue ribbon. As he was about to put it to death plunge, Halegian spoke up. I wouldn't do that, cautioned the famed sleuth unless you want to award first prize to an obvious fake. How did Halegian know? The picture window was closed, or else the little girl could not have held a lighted match in winds of 40 miles an hour. Therefore, the body of the woman could not have been falling outside. Remember, the shot was snapped at night with a flash gun, making the room brighter than the outdoors. Thus, the window would have acted as a mirror, reflecting the room rather than transmitting the figure of Mrs. Gramelin. And this one is called The Case of the Dentist's Patient. Dr. Evelyn Williams, London-born, New York dentist, was preparing to take a wax impression of the right lower teeth of his patient, Dorothy Hoover. Silently, the door behind him opened. A gloved hand holding an automatic appeared. Two shots sounded. Miss Hoover slumped over, dead. We've got a suspect, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian at his office an hour afterward. The elevator boy took a nervous man to the 15th floor, Dr. Williams has one of six offices on the floor, a few moments before the shooting. The description fits John Torpedo Burton. Burton is out on parole, continued the inspector. I had him picked up this, I had him picked up at his rooming house. As far as he knows, I want to question him about a minor parole infraction. Burton was ushered in and angrily demanded, what's this all about? Ever hear of Dr. Evelyn Williams? asked the inspector. No, why? Dorothy Hoover was shot to death less than two hours ago as she sat in a chair in Dr. Williams's office. I've been sleeping all afternoon. An elevator operator says he took a man answering your description to the 15th floor a moment before the shots. It wasn't me, snarled Burton. I look like a lot of guys. I ain't been near a dentist's office since Sing Sing. This Williams, I bet he never saw me. So what can you prove? Enough, snapped Dr. Halegian, to send you to the chair. What was the basis of Halegian's remark? Pause for the answer, which is, although Burden claimed never to have heard of Dr. Evelyn Williams, he knew the doctor was one, a dentist, and two, a man. This next one is called The Case of Flawless Phil. I've caught a good many crooks, but I've never tried to catch one while posing as a used car salesman, confessed Dr. Halegian. We think one of the men who have been smuggling dope across the border will, will be around for that car, replied Sheriff Monahan. He pointed to a 1984 gray sedan. Last week, we got a tip that dope was being smuggled in a car parked outside Priestley's Bar and Grill. 
We missed the smugglers, but got the car. Under the back seat, we found a million dollars worth of pure heroin. We had to rip up the entire floor of the car to get the stuff, the sheriff went on. Phil Barton, who runs this car lot as Phil's flawless finds, agreed to put the car on display. It's bait. We hope the smugglers will try to find out if the dope is still hidden in it. Halegian agreed to play the part of a salesman. On the windshield, he stuck a poster that announced Phil's flawless special today only. After a while, a dark-haired man moved toward the sedan. May I help you? inquired Halegian and began his sales pitch. The customer edged toward the sedan without ever getting nearer than six feet of it. He seemed only half-heartedly interested as he peered at the engine. Halegian stepped around to the driver's window. The engine has only 12,000 miles on it. The inside, he admitted, is floorless. Is it? said the man and walked hurriedly away. He's one of the smugglers, said Halegian. Arrest him. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer, which is the man was scared off because he thought Halegian said the car was floorless, which in fact Halegian did say. But as the man never got close enough to see the floor of the car, he would have assumed, had he not been floor-minded, that Halegian said flawless, the slogan of the car lot. That was interesting. This next one is called The Case of the Footprint. Half a mile from where the body of Art Sykes, a hunter, had been found stabbed to death, was a rudely constructed hut. The occupant, an eccentric hermit who grubbed a meager living from the surrounding forest by hunting and fishing, was the only human being found within 30 miles of the murder. He was taken into custody, protesting his innocence. The local police chief established the following facts as the wild man crouched miserably in his jail cell, grunting, no kill man. One, Sykes had been stabbed two days before or about the time the heavy rains had stopped. Two, since then, an unreasonable heat wave had gripped the area, baking the ground dry. Hearing that Dr. Allegian was nearby, the police chief summoned the sleuth to show off his up-to-date scientific police methods. This morning, we got the big break, said the chief. We found, the, we found a perfect right shoe print in the clay near the scene of the crime. We took a plaster impre impression, continued the chief. It's the exact size and shape of that crazy man's new shoe. Halegian obtained permission to examine the suspect's shoes. His shoes are new, all right, said Halegian, but of a kind sold by the hundreds to trappers and hunters. I'm afraid, Chief, your plastic impression does more to prove him innocent than guilty. How come? Pause for the answer. To be the killer's, the footprint had to be made when, when the earth was wet, but the impression was taken after the earth had been baked dry. As earth contracts in drying, shrinking footprints up to half an inch, the fact that the undersized print made when the ground was baked dry fit the suspect's shoe perfectly proved it was not made by him. And this next one is called The Case of Freddy the Forger. 
somebody's tipped Freddy the Forager, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian. Freddy cleared out his hotel room an hour before we raided it. The inspector handed Halegian a cardboard onto which a torn sheet of paper showing dates and places had been pasted together. We found the pieces in Freddy's waste paper basket, the inspector said, so at least we know where he's going. Halegian read the penciled notes. Paris, August 14, Naples, September 12, Athens, September 21, London, October 3rd, Palestine, October 15th, Moscow, December 24th. Looks like an itinerary, agreed Halegian, but is it Freddy's? Toby Kirk, Freddy's New York girl, insists it's his writing. She said she was in his hotel and overheard him making a long-distance telephone call. He talked to Paris and got a hotel reservation for August 15. She didn't overhear much, but she thinks he then made a plane reservation for a flight that left New York at 2 p.m. August 14. Freddy's a smart operator, continued the inspector. He always dreams up a new disguise. Toby Kirk says when he was in New York, he bought a 10-gallon hat. I put Deal, my best man, on the case. Deal leaves tonight for France. If Freddy shows up in Paris wearing a fez, Deal will spot him and bring him back. Unfortunately, said Halegian, Deal will be flying in the wrong direction to capture Freddy. How come? Pause for the answer. <clears throat> the fact that Freddy wrote down Palestine instead of Israel as a destination told Halegian he planned a transcontinental flight, not a transatlantic one. The new 10-gallon hat pinpointed Texas, Paris, Naples, Athens, London, Palestine, and Moscow are all towns in the Lone Star State. And this one is called The Case of the French Vineyard. <clears throat> The dinner at the mansion rented by Pierre Gibral was superb. While the roast was being served, Gibral arose, deftly unscrewing the cork from a chilled bottle of red table wine, and poured a little into the glass of Dr. Halegian. Halegian sipped and politely nodded approval. As Gibral poured for his other guests, Jim Morgan, seated by Halegian, whispered, What do you think? About the wine? said Halegian. It's excellent. You know, of course, why we were invited. I expect Gibralt needs money, replied the sleuth. He was in my office last week, said Morgan, to get a list of people who might be interested in investing in a French vineyard. Gibralt claims to be a wine exporter from Bordeaux, but I haven't had time to check him out, continued Morgan. He assured me the vineyard up for sale has the richest soil in France. It produces the very best grapes. He wants to make red, sparkling burgundy to sell in America at top prices. How much cash does he need? And will it be in a hurry? asked Halegian. The vineyard's owner wants the equivalent of a million American dollars. And he wants it by Tuesday or no sale, said Morgan. I put your name on the guest list because I thought you might help me get a quick appraisal of Gibraltar. I have, replied Halegian. Don't invest a penny. Why not? Pause for the answer, which is Halegian knew Gibraltar was a confidence man, not a wine expert from, from Bordeaux, France, because one, he served 
chilled red wine opened at the table when red table wine should be opened an hour before serving and kept at room temperature. Two, the richest soil does not produce the best grapes for wine. Three, the poorest, not the best, French grapes go into red sparkling burgundy. And this next one is called The Case of the Green Pen. Except for the ambulance attendants, Sheriff Monahan and Dr. Halegian, there was nobody at the Meadowbrook bowling lanes, the only alleys in town, except a young woman sprawled by the front door with a knife in her back. The lanes closed at midnight, said the sheriff. One of my men discovered the body at 4 a.m., and I called you right away. Dead about an hour, said Halegian. Who was she? Roberta, Roberta Lane, replied the sheriff. She just married Theodore Lane, a merchant captain, before he sailed for Hawaii last week. They have a little house on Bleecker Street. Any suspects? Charlie Barrett, maybe. Roberta jilted him for Ted. Halegian dropped a green fountain pen by the door. Let's pay Mr. Barrett a, a visit. The suspect lived in a room behind the gasoline station he owned. Halegian's first words were, Do you know Roberta? Has been murdered? No, gasped Barnett. Well, that's enough for now, said Halegian. Then, as if in an afterthought, he added, I must have dropped my fountain pen by the front door of the lanes where we found the body. I'm due in the city in an hour. Mind getting the pen for me and leaving it with the sheriff this morning? Barrett, Barnett looked uncertain. He shrugged. Sure. When he brought the pen to the sheriff's office later that morning, he was promptly arrested. Why? <clears throat> Pause for the answer. Although... Barnett claimed he did not know Roberta Lane had just been murdered. He knew, as Halegian said, that the pen lay by the front door of the lanes. Had he been innocent, he would have looked for the pen at the front door of the lanes, that is, at their house. That's pretty clever. Now, this one is called The Case of the Haunted House. You can't rent more for your money than the house said Tilford, the real estate agent. It has charm, fancy brickwork, half-timbering, casement windows, three terraces, and a lady ghost. Ghost? inquired Dr. Halegian, pushing open a bedroom window. He gazed upon the flagstone terrace two stories below. The ghost is Jennifer Godley, explained Tilford. This was her house. On March 28, 1979, she was hurled from this very window. Her body was found on the stones below. At first, the police thought she was a suicide or had accidentally fallen, continued Tilford. They then realized that this window was closed when she was found. Henry Godley, her husband, admitted entering the bedroom and closing the window himself. It was a chilly day, and he claimed that he didn't know his wife lay dead on the stones below. Of course, he was sentenced to life. Whoa, cried Halegian. On what evidence? Ben Taylor, a school teacher, saw the whole thing. He was out bird watching. The Godleys lived like hermits, never had visitors, didn't allow anyone within a mile of the place. But Ben Taylor had binoculars, and at the trial, he testified that he saw Henry Godley slide up the window and throw poor Jennifer headfirst to the terrace. Halegian pursed his lips and thought. The next day, 
he telephoned Tilford. I've decided not to rent the house for the summer, he said, but I am going to see that Henry Godley is given a new trial. Why? Pause here for the answer, which is Ben Taylor lied in testifying he saw Godley slide up the window by which he allegedly threw his wife to her death. It was a casement window, which is hinged and which Hallegian opened by pushing. <laughs> that was a good one. This next one here is called The Case of the Hero Dog. My pitch last night was beautiful, Cyril Macon, the woeful wooer, told Dr. Hallegian. How did Trudy Shore ever see through it? For three generations, continued Mackin, Trudy's family have been circus people doing a dog act. If you aren't a canine connoisseur with a fabulous dog somewhere in the family, she won't date you twice. So to score with, so to score with her, I made up a grandpa and his faithful four-legged helper. Mackin sipped his drink disconsolately. Then he recounted his latest unsuccessful pitch. Near Grandpa's farm, the railroad tracks made a hairpin turn between two stony cliffs. From his fields, Grandpa could see the tracks. If rocks fell upon them, Grandpa climbed a hill and warned the engineer by waving a red flag. One day, Grandpa saw rocks falling on the tracks. He started for the hill as a train approached, but tripped and knocked himself unconscious. That's when the dog proved his mettle. The dog raced to the house. The dog pulled down Grandpa's long red underwear from the clothesline, raced to the hill, and there ran back and forth, trailing the red underwear like a warning flag. The engineer saw the red signal and stopped the train, saving hundreds of passengers from death or injury, concluded Mackin. You're lucky, said Hallegian. Trudy didn't bite your nose off for a dog story like that. What was wrong with it? Pause for the answer. Unfortunately for Cyril's pitch, the dog couldn't have known that the flag Grandpa waved was red or that the underwear was red. Dogs are colorblind. And this next one is called The Case of the Hidden Diamond. The thieves spent six hours in the home of Ted Duda. At first, they searched the house, trying to find where he had hid his huge diamond valued at half a million dollars. Then they tried beating the information out of him. They fled at dawn, fearing detection. Fatally hurt, Duda crawled to his desk and typed a note to his partner, John Madden. It read, John, four men tried to tell me where I had hidden the diamond. At first, they looked through the house, raving like madmen. Then, in desperation, the barbarian split open the cat. When all failed, they beat me, but I did not tell. I'm dying. The diamond is hidden in the vein. Duda died this morning, Inspector Winters told Dr. Hallegian. We have his murderers, but not the diamond. The inspector handed Hallegian a copy of the death note. We took down the weather vane, a cock, but there wasn't anything inside it, the inspector said. We're still searching the house. Hallegian read the note and said, You also failed to find the body of the cat, but you did find a broken barrel of liquor. Why, yes, said the inspector. The thieves were thorough. They broke the barrel and every bottle in Duda's little wine cellar. How many walking sticks did Duda own? The inspector looked puzzled. One? It must be hollow, said Hallegian. You'll find the diamond inside it. The inspector did, 
But how did Halegian know? Pause for the answer. Halegian realized that the dying Duda could not have typed errorlessly, as it appeared. He quickly saw that Duda had interchanged the V and the C, which are positioned next to each other on the typewriter keyboard, reread the note, substituting the V for the C, and vice versa. The answer was found. And this one is called The Case of the Home Bakery. I was driving by when I got the darndest tack of indigestion, said Sheriff Monahan apologetically. Do you have some bicarbonate of soda? Mrs. Duffy, a motherly woman of 60, smiled cheerfully. You just sit right down in the kitchen, Sheriff, she said. I don't keep bicarbonate of soda on hand, but I'll brew you a nice cup of tea. It'll work wonders, I promise. Sheriff Monahan seated himself obediently while Mrs. Duffy bustled about her neat little kitchen. He had always admired the kindly woman who dwelt alone and made her own living. After the sheriff had finished his tea, he rose to leave. I feel better already. Many thanks. Outside, he saw Mrs. Duffy's panel truck. It was parked by the south wing of the house, which he had always assumed was her bakery, and which she made the bread, cakes, and pies she, she sold to ends along the highway. He studied the pink lettering on the truck, Maud Duffy's homemade pies, cakes, and bread. He stared thoughtfully at the house. Back in town, he telephoned Dr. Halegian. The famed criminologist heartily advised him to get a search warrant, and within the hour, the sheriff had returned to Mrs. Duffy's. A search of the premises disclosed that Maud Duffy's pies, cakes, and bread were commercial products with wrappers removed, but the bottles of whiskey illegally secreted within each Pullman leaf were strictly home-brewed. What made the sheriff suspicious? And pause for the answer, which is the sheriff realized that Mrs. Duffy wasn't baking in the back of her house when she said, I don't keep bicarbonate of soda on hand. Bicarbonate of soda is another term for baking soda, which anyone doing baking would stock as a staple. This next one is called The Case of the Hotel Murder. Dr. Halegian was shaving in, it in his motel room on the second floor when he heard a woman screaming, Help! Tossing on his robe, he dashed into the hall. In front of room 212, a woman stood crying and screaming. Introducing himself, Halegian looked through the open door and saw a man slumped in an easy chair. A swift examination showed he had just been killed by a bullet through the heart. Try to get hold of yourself and tell me what happened, said the sleuth. I'm Clara Uffner, sobbed the woman. A few moments ago, I heard a knock on the door. A voice said, telegram. I opened the door. A masked man stood there, a gun in his gloved hand, and he shot my husband, tossed the gun into the room, and ran. The automatic pistol on the floor, Halegian saw, was equipped with a silencer. Returning to the hall, he noted the door at one end marked exit. Re-entering the room, he stepped on something hard. It turned out to be an empty cartridge shell. Farther to the left was another. Both were of the caliber to match the pistol. Embedded in the wall, about two feet above the seated body, Halegian discovered a second bullet. All right, Mrs. Uffner, he said sternly. Now, tell me the truth. Why did he doubt Mrs. Uffner? Pause for the answer. 
which is, had the mysterious killer fired from the hall into the room, the shells from his gun would not have fallen forward into the room and to the left. An automatic pistol ejects to the right and a few feet behind the shooter. Now this next one is called The Case of the Hunting Accident. Dr. Halegian's weekend hunting trip ended abruptly when he stumbled upon the body of a middle-aged man dressed in hunter's garb lying in a shallow gorge. An autopsy disclosed that the death had been instantaneous. A bullet had entered just above the hip and lodged in the heart. Investigation by the police established the dead man as John C. Mills, a New York City ad man. Further, Mills and a friend Whit Kearns had rented a hunting, a hunting lodge near where the body was found. Kearns was immediately brought in for questioning. A suave, impeccably tailored sportsman of 50, Kearns looked from the inspector to Dr. Halegian before saying resignedly, All right, I didn't mean to run away. I, I suppose I just panicked. Johnny Mills and I rent the same lodge every year, continued Kearns. We've never failed to bring back one bear at least. We had spent a week in the woods and our time was up. It was the last day and for the first time we hadn't shot a solitary Bruin. I noticed a rock formation and climbed to the top to see if I couldn't spot one. Suddenly I heard John shout in terror in the clearing below me. A bear had got to him. I shot but only wounded the bear. It reared on its hind legs. Just as I fired again, John got in the way. My bullet struck him and he tumbled into the gorge. The bear disappeared, concluded Kearns. I panicked, I admit, but I swear it was an accident. The facts, said Halegian quietly, disprove your tale. What was Kearns's slip? And pause for the answer. Shooting into the clearing below from atop a rock formation, Kearns's bullet would have followed a downward angle but the bullet that killed Mills traveled upward from hip to heart. And this next one is called the case of the Indian jug. The day before the big tech versus state football game, the state mascot an Indian jug disappeared. Three hours before kickoff, one of the state fraternities was anonymously informed that the jug was buried on the estate of E.B. Van Snipe, millionaire tech grad, fanatical football booster, and notorious prankster. Six state undergraduates enlisted the aid of Dr. Halegian. Arming them with shovels, the famous sleuth drove out to see Van Snipe, an old friend. Certainly the jug is buried here, Van Snipe said, his eyes twinkling mischievously. The state boys gazed with dismay upon the area of ground Vance Knight had indicated. It was a fresh it was a freshly turned half acre, scraped and rolled and freshly sown on every inch with grass seed. The area was walled on three sides, and a stone walk bordered the fourth, and dead center stood a bird bath. A maple tree grew at one end of the expanse, and two wild olive trees at the opposite end. You have two hours till kickoff said Vance Knight. The jug is hidden in, in the only reasonable place in the half acre. Find it and you can have it back. But if you fail by game time, you must pay for planting the whole lawn. The state boys prepared to leave, but within half an hour, they unearthed the Indian jug after Halegian told them where to dig. Where? Pause for the answer, which is the only reasonable place 
was where Vance Knight didn't expect to grow a lawn anyway. That meant under the maple, whose surface roots steal food and moisture from the smaller grass roots, making grass impossible. The case of the Indian trader. Dr. Halegian and the rest of the saddle sore dudes on the deluxe tour of Western sites entered the Adobe Museum and stared at an empty green-tinted glass bottle. Its label read, Doc Henry's Secret Elixir. The tour's bandy-legged little guide recounted the reason for the bottle's enshrinement. Beautiful Jimmy Knox was saved by 77 of them bottles back in 83, he began. Old Doc Henry was an engine trader, never sold a drop of his elixir to a white man, only to them engines. Of course, Doc kept the ingredients a secret, but on his deathbed, he's supposed to have admitted it weren't nothing but sugar water. Well, one night, some crazy drunk engines kidnapped young Jenny. It was Doc Henry who volunteered to go after her. He set off with a wagon load of trading goods and 80 bottles of his elixir hung from the beams. For five days of sub-freezing weather, he palavered with them savages. But Doc brings Jenny home safe. He'd had to trade all his bottles, but three, but three for her, and all his other stuff in the bargain. Doc, concluded the guide, was a hero. Imagine going up into them hills alone and trading a pack of crazy drunk redskins out of a beautiful girl. Doc was no hero corrected Halegian. He was an old rascal who was partly responsible for Jenny's kidnapping. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer. After five days of sub-freezing weather, the sugar water would have frozen and broken the glass bottles. Hence, the elixir had to be something with a low freezing point, an alcoholic beverage that got the Indians crazy drunk. This one is called The Case of the Last Moreno. From the smirk connecting your ears, I assume you've hit upon a new scheme for making a million dollars, Dr. Halegian said to Bertie Tilford. Not quite a million, corrected Bertie, a young Englishman with more ways to avoid work than aces up the sleeve of a Mississippi gambler. Bertie opened his briefcase and showed Halegian a pen and ink sketch of a bearded man. Looks like a Tosado Moreno, Halegian marveled. Precisely, gloated Bertie. All the world knows the great artist died in Alaska three years ago. The details were never divulged till his friend, Kiako, meeting hard times, came to me. The facts are, continued Bertie, that Moreno injured his hip in a storm that buried his and Kiako's supplies on the trail. The weather had been far below freezing for days, and Moreno, his, his hip injured, failed rapidly. Kiako got him to an abandoned shack. He stopped up the broken window with his gloves. As he tore apart a chair to build a fire, Moreno called to him. There was no time. He couldn't live half an hour. Moreno asking for drawing materials. Kiako found an old pen and a bottle of ink in a cupboard. Moreno sketched his faithful friend and died. The prices of Moreno's have soared since his death. His last picture should be worth a quarter of a million. I can buy it from Kiyako for 20000 concluded Bertie. Have you 20 old boy? For that portrait, not 20 cents, snapped Halegian. Why not? 
and pause for the answer. As the weather had been far below freezing for days and the shack had a broken window, the ink would have been frozen, frozen solid and impossible to draw with. And this next one is called The Case of the Lady Murderer. According to the coroner's report, Mrs. Tredor, the town recluse, had been bludgeoned to death two days ago in the kitchen of her decaying hilltop mansion. I received an anonymous telephone call at 4 a.m. yesterday that she had been murdered. Sheriff Monahan confessed to Dr. Halegian. Heaven help me, I thought it was just another prank and didn't investigate till this afternoon. Living alone, never showing herself anywhere, why Mrs. Treader's been the butt of every practical joke in the book, including the death gimmick a dozen times. The sheriff conducted Halegian onto the front porch. It's got so no store in town would send anything on a telephone order. Had to have it in writing. Aside from a daily milk and newspaper delivery, the only visitors who climbed up to see her regularly were the weekly grocery boy and Doc Bentley, both due tomorrow. You can see why. Halegian gazed down a long slope of underbrush to the road below. The driveway to the house was overgrown and impassable, and deliveries obviously had to be made on foot. The famed sleuth sat down in a rocking chair, the only object on the sagging porch, besides two unopened newspapers. Who was the last person to see Mrs. Treader alive? Mrs. Carson, probably, said the sheriff. Early on the day of Mrs. Treader's death, she was driving by and noticed the old lady came out on the porch to take in her bottle of milk. The sheriff paused. Mrs. Treader was supposed to have $50,000 hidden someplace. We can't find it or any clues. Except for that anonymous telephone call, corrected Halegian. The murderer never figured you wouldn't investigate within the hour. Whom did Halegian suspect? Pause for the answer. The milkman who thought he didn't have to make his daily delivery. There were two newspapers on the porch, but no bottles of milk. And this next one is called The Case of the Locked Room. I think I've been taken for $10,000, but I can't figure out how it was done, said Archer Skeet, the blind violinist, to Dr. Halegian as the two friends sat in the musician's library. Last night, Marty Scopes dropped by, continued Skeet. Marty had a ginger ale, and we got to chatting about the locked room mysteries till I made this crazy $10,000 bet. Marty then went to the bar over there, filled a glass with six cubes of ice, and gave it to me. He took a bottle of ginger ale and left the room. I locked the door and the windows from the inside, felt to make sure that Marty's glass held only ice, and put it to the wall safe behind you. Then I turned off the lights and sat down to wait. The bet was that within an hour, Marty could enter the dark, locked room, open the locked safe, take out the glass, remove the ice, pour in half a glass of ginger ale, lock the safe, and leave the room, locking it behind him, all without my hearing him. When the alarm bell rang after an hour, I had heard nothing. Confidently, I unlocked the door. I kept Marty whistling in the hall when I crossed the room to the opposite wall and opened the safe. The glass was inside. By heavens, it was half filled with ginger ale and only ginger ale. I tasted it. How did he do it? Undoubtedly by means of an insulated bag, replied Halegian after a moment's thought. 
There is nothing wrong with your hearing, but no man could have heard... Heard what? Pause for the answer. Ice melting. Marty had brought with him frozen ice cubes of ginger ale. After setting up the bet, he had slipped the ginger ale cubes into the glass. While they melted in the glass inside the safe, Marty waited in the hall. And this next one is called The Case of the Lookout. Dr. Halesian was the only customer in the little drugstore when the shooting started. He had just taken his first sip of black coffee when three men dashed from the bank across the street, guns blazing. As the holdup men jumped into a waiting car, a nun and a chauffeur sought refuge in the drugstore. You're both upset, said Halesian. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. They thanked him. The nun ordered black coffee, the chauffeur a glass of root beer. The three fell to talking about the flying bullets and had barely touched their drinks when sirens sounded. The robbers had been captured and were being returned to the bank for identification. Halegian moved to a front window to watch. As he returned to the counter, the nun and the chauffeur thanked him again and departed. The counterman had cleared the glass and the cups. Sorry, mister, he said to Halegian. I didn't know you weren't done. The counterman looked at the two coffee cups he had just removed from the counter and passing Halegian the one without lipstick said, what do you think a chauffeur was doing around here? There isn't a limousine on the street. Halegian thought for a moment. Good grief, he cried. We had the gang's lookout right here. And he dashed out to make the capture. What aroused Halegian suspicion? Pause for the answer. The woman dressed as a nun admitted being the lookout after Halegian had seized her down the block. Halegian too had noticed the lipstick on her coffee cup and knew... She was not a real nun, since nuns don't wear lipstick. And this one is called The Case of the Lost City. I'm really on to something big this time, said Bertie Tilford, the irrepressible Englishman with more get-rich-quick schemes than horsehair in a mattress factory. He fished a letter from his pocket and pressed it to Dr. Halegian. Run your eyes on this, old boy. The letter addressed to Bertie was signed Baron Strom. Halegian read, Am positive I have located the lost city of Heliopolis, which was buried by the eruption of Mount Vitras in 147 AD. Can you rush me $30,000 to begin excavations? Baron Strom, explained Bertie, came to see me before departing on his search for Heliopolis last year. He said if he ever found the city, he'd let me in on the ground floor, so to speak, a half share of everything if I backed him. Bertie grinned smugly. Can you imagine what a discovery like Heliopolis will be worth? Of course, said Halegian. You'd like to raise some of the 30000 from me. A pittance, my dear chap. A mere bagatelle, said, Bert, said Bertie. I'm doing you a favor. Let me have 10000 and I'll make you a fortune. I don't know anything about your Baron Strom, said Halegian, or the lost city of Heliopolis, but the man who wrote that letter is obviously not an archaeologist, so no money today for you, my swindler. Why not? Pause for the answer. A bona fide archaeologist would never have written in 147 A.D. A.D. means Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. And unlike B.C., it always precedes the date as 
AD 147. And this next one is called The Case of the Maestro's Choice. Even by night, even by the night of the concert, Gregory Pitts, the famous conductor, hadn't decided which of his star pupils, Ivan Poser or Mark Dunn, would make his violin debut. The anxious youths dressed in separate private dressing rooms. Fifteen minutes before curtain time, Pitts made up his mind. He told Poser he had been selected. Then he broke the sad news to Don. Ten minutes later, Pitts went to fetch Poser for the performance. The youth lay dead in the middle of the tiny dressing room floor, shot through the head. Trembling, Pitts locked the door and summoned his old friend, Dr. Halegian, from the wings. Halegian urged the maestro to play the concert and followed him into Don's dressing room. Hearing that he was to perform after all, without hearing why, Don looked surprised and pleased. He straightened his tie, picked up his violin and bow, and followed Pitts downstairs and onto the stage. The two musicians bowed to the applause. Don waited stiffly till Pitts signaled to the orchestra. Then the youth raised his violin to his chin. A moment later, Don was stroking the opening notes. Halegian telephoned the police and advised them to arrest the young violinist. Why? Pause for the answer. The fact that Don was prepared to perform and therefore was aware of Poser's death indicated he was involved in the murder. Had he been unaware, he would have stopped to rosin his bow and tune his violin before playing. Okay, this one is called The Case of the Missing Button. Maddie Linden, a husky 10th grade student, scowled at, scowled at Inspector Winters. You must be some kind of nut. I didn't slug Miss Casey and I didn't steal her purse. No, unfortunately for you, a ninth grade girl happened to enter the corridor where Miss Casey lay. The girl saw a boy in, the in a dark cardigan sweater and brown pants leaving by the door at the far end. The, in the inspector paused and then demanded, do you always wear your sweater buttoned? Sure, replied Maddie. Why? Because you might have noticed the third button from the top is missing snapped the inspector. He held up the missing button. The girl who spotted you found this button clasped in Miss Casey's hand. I lost that button two days ago, retorted Maddie. This girl, how could she be sure it was me in that long corridor? She isn't positive. She saw only your back, but this missing button proves you did it. Luckily, Miss Casey isn't badly hurt. Now, where's her purse? Maddie kept insisting he didn't know a thing about the slugging or the theft, the inspector told Dr. Halegian later. No doubt, said Halegian. The boy had some silly alibi about where he was when Miss Casey was slugged and robbed. Right, he claims he got a note to be in the school boiler room at 10, 15 minutes before Miss Casey was assaulted. He waited half an hour, but nobody showed up. I trust you made an arrest, asked Halegian. What was the guilty student's error? Pause for the answer. In trying to frame Maddie Linden, the ninth grade girl made too much of a point of the cardigan, which he always wore buttoned. Since she saw only the back of a boy leaving the corridor, she could not have known whether his sweater was a pullover or a cardigan unless she knew beforehand having, having stolen the button from it. Okay. 
And this one is called The Case of Molly's Mule. Cyril Mackin, the amateur amorist, sagged dejectedly into a chair in Dr. Halegian's home. I got slapped last night, he moaned. I can't figure what was wrong with my pitch this time. I was trying to impress Lily, Lily McMurdoch, continued Cyril. You know her. her. Her father owns Greenpoint Farms, the big racing stable. Animals come before anything in the McMurdoch book. Why, last year, her old man scratched his ace thoroughbred from the Garden Classic because he suspected a sore hoof. Give up a crack at $100,000. Well, I had to top that animal before money bit, Cyril continued. So I unbottled my great uncle, Death Valley Tim, and his faithful mule, Molly M. I told Libby about how Uncle Tim and Molly M. went into the desert in 89. That trip, Uncle Tim hit the mother load, richest gold strike ever. But did he haul it right away? No, sir. Molly M. was ailing, and Molly M. came before anything. Uncle Tim just waited week after week. Finally, Molly M. had her little one, strike it rich. But Uncle Tim waited another week till Molly M. was strong enough to tote a load of gold. When Tim returned to the desert, he discovered a storm had wiped out all trace of the diggings. He never found the spot again. Five or six million were lost by waiting for Molly M. instead of making two or three quick trips, though the poor beast wasn't fit for heavy work. About there, broke in Dr. Halegian, Miss Libby McMurdoch, the animal lover, decided that you weren't fit for her. Why not? Pause for the answer. No mule, not even Molly M. can reproduce. <laughs> And this next one is called The Case of Murder at the Zoo. The headlights of Dr. Halegian's car flooded over a blonde man darting across the road. Halegian spun the steering wheel and slammed on the brake. Are you all right? He called anxiously. I'm okay, the man gasped, but there's somebody, I think he's dead, lying in the zoo. I was running to get the police. Explaining he was a doctor, Halegian persuaded the blonde man to show him the corpse. About a hundred yards from the road, near a giraffe enclosure, lay a figure in a doorman's uniform. He's just been slain, said Halegian, shot in the back. Do you know him? No, the man said. My name is Chris Taylor. I was out for a walk when a car passed me a few minutes ago. It was traveling very slowly. The next thing I knew, an orange flame appeared in the back of the car. Then a giraffe began to scream as if in pain. The enclosure is visible from the road, and I saw one giraffe running in circles and suddenly collapse. I went to investigate and stumbled on the body here. I want to see the giraffe, muttered Halegian. He climbed the fence and knelt beside the stricken animal. Poor creature has been shot in the neck. The way I figure it, said Taylor, the killer must have missed this man and hit the giraffe with his first shot. The second bullet found the mark, though. Undoubtedly, that is what happened, agreed Halegian except for one thing. You weren't running to get help. You were running away. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer. Taylor claimed that he stumbled on the dead man after being attracted by the scream of the giraffe. Unfortunately for his story, a giraffe is voiceless. I never knew that. This next one is called The Case of Murder Before the Concert. 
The body of pretty Frida Dillon lay beside her green sedan in the driveway of the boarding house where she had lived. She had been slain at 8 p.m. some 15 minutes before she was due at the Civic Auditorium to perform in a concert slated for 8.30 p.m. She had been shot twice. The first bullet had pierced her right thigh, leaving a large bloodstain on her dark sheath skirt. The second and fatal bullet had pierced her heart, leaving a blood stain on her white blouse. Inside the sedan was Miss Dillon's cello. The police took testimony from three persons. The landlady, Mrs. Wilson, who found the body, said Frida had decided to attend the concert but not to play because she had been annoyed by an over-ardent suitor, Bill Sanders, a fellow orchestra member. Frida hadn't practiced her cello or taken it from the car in a week. Bill Sanders insisted that he and Frida had patched up their romance. She had told him she would play and that she'd pick him up at 8.10 p.m. and they would drive together to the auditorium as they always did. But he had waited for her in vain. Laszlo St. John, the conductor, said that the women members of the orchestra wore dark skirts and white blouses and the men wore white jackets and black trousers, though minor details of style were optional. The orchestra members dressed at home. He added that Frida undoubtedly could perform well without any practice since the concert was a repeat program. After reading the three statements, Halegian immediately knew Sanders was lying. How? Pause for the answer. Halegian knew that Frida Dillon had no intention of playing with the orchestra, as Bill Sanders claimed. She was a cellist and could not possibly have performed wearing a sheath skirt. This next one is called The Case of the Murdered Camper. Dr. Halegian and Sheriff Monahan had scarcely finished supper when Wyatt Fulton burst into their camp clearing. Hurry, Sheriff, he cried. Bob's been killed. During the five-minute tramp to his campsite, Fulton recounted what had happened. An hour ago, just as Bob and I were going to have coffee, two men with rifles stepped out of the woods. We mistook them for hunters till they announced a holdup. Bob jumped one, but the other struck him on the head with a rock. They tied us up and stole our money. I finally worked free and cut Bob loose. He was dead. I remembered you'd gone camping, Sheriff, so I looked for your fire. At Bolton's campsite, Halegian's practiced eye missed nothing. Bob Swam's body lay on its back near the fire. Near the body were several strands of rope and a bloody rock. A yard away was the uncut rope that had apparently been used to, find, to bind Bolton. Two sleeping bags and two knapsacks lay on the ground. On a large flat stone were pairs of plates, forks, cups, and knives. The cups were unused. Bob Swam died about an hour ago, probably from the blow on the head, Halegian said. For a moment afterward, the only sound in the clearing was the hissing from the fire as the small black coffee pot cast boiling drops over the brim and onto the flaming logs below. Halegian broke the silence. A neatly staged murder scene, Fulton, but you made one fatal mistake. What was the mistake? Pause for the answer. Had the coffee pot been put on the fire before the two hold-up men murdered Swam an hour ago, as Fulton 
claimed, the water would have boiled away far below the brim of the small pot. Hence, Fulton had just put on the pot before running to fetch the sheriff. And this next one is called The Case of the Murdered Skier. When a mid-January thaw melted the snowdrifts in the Adirondack Mountains, a late model sports car was found parked on the side of the road near the Gildan Ski Lodge. Inside were the bodies of May Elliott and Roger Kirk, victims of rifle shots. Both had registered at the resort a week earlier under fictitious names. We checked out Miss Elliott. Nothing said Inspector Winters to Dr. Halegian as the two men stood in the trophy-hung living room of Roger Kirk. Halegian read a maple plaque awarded to Kirk as runner-up in the 1979 World Water Ski Championships. Then he moved to a table whereon were four birthday gifts opened by the police. Halegian studied a book on undercover water treasure hunting from a Merkin, a pair of ski poles from Kurt Gowan, a spear gun from Jack Schick, and a monogrammed pith helmet from Walter Parker. Kirk's been living off his reputation for years, said the inspector. He taught water skiing and skin diving to celebrities. Maybe if he'd stuck to his line, he'd still be alive. He was a schemer, never told anybody what he was up to, certainly not about the rendezvous with May Elliott. He invited four men to his birthday party here. They showed up, but he didn't, because that night he registered at the ski lodge under a phony name. I spoke with the four men, the, inspe the inspector went on. Kirk wrote them the same invitation. Before I go off skiing, come over and wish me a happy birthday. Tuesday, my place, 8 p.m. The guests, Merkin, Gowan, Schick, and Parker, left their gifts with the building superintendent and went home. They all claimed they didn't know where he was going skiing. One of them is obviously lying, said Halegian. Which one? Pause for the answer. Kurt Gowan, whose gift of ski poles showed he knew Kurt, the water ski ace, was going to ski on snow when he should have assumed, as the others did, that he was going south to ski on water. The next one is called The Case of the Murdered Wife. Dr. Halegian finished examining the body of Maureen Page, which lie on the maroon carpet of her fashionable Gables home. Mrs. Page was struck fatally on the head with the butt of that pistol, the famous sleuth said. She probably was hit four or five times. The thirty-eight had been found near the body. Sheriff Monahan was carefully dusting it for fingerprints. I've telephoned her husband at his office, the sheriff said. I only told him he'd better hurry home. Hate the job of breaking the news of her murder. Will you do it? All right, Halegian agreed heavily, watching the body being carried to an ambulance. Then he sat down to wait for John Page. The ambulance had driven off when the distraught husband burst through the front door. What happened? Where's Maureen? I'm sorry to have to tell you this. She was murdered about two hours ago, said Halegian. Your cook found the body in the living room and telephoned the sheriff. I can't find fingerprints on the murder gun, interrupted the sheriff, holding the weapon wrapped in a handkerchief. I'll have the lab go over it thoroughly. Page's facial muscles twitched with emotion as he stared at the outline of the gun through the handkerchief. Suddenly, he gripped the sheriff's arm. Find the fiend who clubbed Maureen to death. I'll put up a $50,000 reward. Save your money, said Halegian. 
The murderer won't be that hard to find. Why not? Pause for the answer. Had John Page been innocent, he would not have known that his wife had been clubbed to death. Seeing the murder gun, he should have assumed she had been shot. That one was fairly easy, right? Okay, and this next one is called The Case of the Murdering Rival. Molly Phipps was murdered in the basement of her apartment house yesterday, Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian. The murder weapon, a bread knife, was wiped clean of fingerprints, but we have two suspects, Derek Coleman and Eric Hoder, a pair of rival suitors. The inspector related the details of the case. Molly's body, dressed in sneakers, shorts, and a white sweatshirt, was found by the janitor at noon, about an hour after the time of death. She had been duly registered as a crew member aboard Derek Coleman's yacht for the ocean powerboat race that afternoon. She'd been in his crew before. Coleman got to the docks around noon, an hour late. He claims he was delayed by motor trouble, which he fixed himself. Nobody saw him do it. He could have spent the hour killing Molly. Eric Hoder was seen talking to Molly that morning in front of her apartment. He claims he asked her to lunch. He says she refused because she had an afternoon engagement and had to hurry to the hairdresser. Hoder, an artist, says he then went back to his studio and painted all day. But he has no confirming witnesses either. I talked to Coleman and Hoder for hours, concluded the sheriff. I can't shake their stories. One of them is lying. I'm sure of it. So am I, said Halegian. Whom did Halegian suspect? Pause for the answer. Halegian knew Hoder lied in saying Molly told him earlier she was going to the hairdresser. No woman who was going yachting would have her hair set. Okay. And this one is called The Case of the Musical Thief. The visiting British Army band under the baton of Sir Roger Lindsay Haven had just struck up God Save the Queen when two gunshots rang out. Dr. Halegian and Inspector Winters remained in their places until the anthem ended. Then they raced up the aisle and into the streets of New York City. Two blocks away, they found three policemen subduing a stocky man in a blue suit. One of the policemen reported to the inspector. The concert hall box office was held up a few minutes ago by the thickest masked man in a blue suit. He put $6,000 and his gun into a paper bag and fled. We spotted this fellow walking too quickly when we ordered him to halt and he didn't. We shot into the air. He broke into a run and hurled a paper bag down the sewer. You're crazy, screamed the prisoner. I haven't been past the concert hall. I heard a bang. I heard a band playing God Save the Queen and somebody shouted, halt or I'll shoot. I haven't done anything, he insisted. I figured the police were after somebody else. I heard shots, so I ran to get off the street. I tossed a, a bag of orange peels into the sewer. Not money. I, I get excited. Just then, the concert resumed. Despite the intervening buildings, strains of a march could be heard distinctly. You have a good ear for music, commented Halegian, and good eyes. There's a poster over the box office announcing tonight's performance of the British Army Band. You'd have done better not to have read it. What did Halegian mean? Pause for the answer. 
The prisoner insisted he had not been near the concert hall, yet he never would have called the anthem he heard, God Save the Queen, unless he had seen the poster and knew a British band was performing. Had he been innocent, he would have named the music by its American words, My Country, Tis of Thee. Okay, all right. <laughs> Moving right along, this next one is called The Case of Newton the Knife. As the head waiter seated Dr. Halegian and Octavia in a secluded corner, the sleuth ordered a diner. The sleuth observed a diner at the next table catch a squirt of grapefruit in his left ear. Puts me in mind of the case of Newton the knife. Care to hear about it? said Halegian. Couldn't we order first? asked Octavia. Newton the knife, began Halegian, hardly noticing the interruption, was a notorious cutthroat. His body was found in a dingy Brooklyn bar. A bullet had entered his left ear and lodged midway in his brain, causing death instantly. The bullet matched the gun of Figaro Jones, another hoodlum and Newton's sworn enemy. Figaro said he was the last customer in a bar at closing time. When Newton entered, raised his famous knife above his head and cursing in Russian, ran at him. Figaro claimed, he shot in self-defense as Newton charged him head on like a maddened bull. Newton's knife was found clutched in his right hand. He apparently fell, holding it as he died. Figaro's self-defense plea was seconded by the bartender, the only eyewitness. But even without the bartender's phony corroboration, I knew Figaro's account was pure fabrication, concluded Halegian. Can you think why? I'm too hungry to think, said Octavia. Why? Why? Pause for the answer. It would have been impossible for Figaro to shoot Newton through the ear while Newton was charging him head on. Okay. And this one is called the case of the office shooting. As Inspector Winters looked around the cubbyhole office of John Stahl, Bart Rhea said, I touch nothing except the desk telephone. I called you right away. John Stahl's body lay on the threadbare carpet behind his desk. Near his right hand was a large French pistol. Tell me what happened, snapped the inspector. John asked me to come here, began Ray, Rhea. Then right off he started raving about his wife and me. I told him he was way out, but John was, but John had a red flag temper. I, I couldn't calm him down. He doesn't know what he's doing when he goes crazy mad. Suddenly, he jumped up and shouted, I'm going to kill you. With practically one motion, he yanked open the top drawer of his desk and took out a gun and fired at me. He missed. I shot back immediately. It was self-defense. The inspector inserted a pencil into the barrel of the big French pistol and lifted it from beside the corpse. Opening the top desk drawer, he thoughtfully slid the gun inside. Ray is a private investigator, the inspector told Dr. Halegian that night. His pistol is registered to him. It fired the death bullet. We found a bullet from the French pistol in the wall opposite the desk. The shot, Rhea says Stahl, fired first. The pistol bears Stahl's fingerprints, but he didn't have a license for it, and we can't trace it. You charged Rhea with murder, I hope, said Halegian. What else could I do? He's already confessed. What was Rhea's slip? Pause for the answer. Rhea claimed that 
he had touched nothing and that Stahl, with practically one motion, had opened the drawer, taken out the gun, and fired. Even a less hot-tempered man would never have bothered to close the drawer after pulling out a gun with the intent to kill. The inspector found the drawer closed, remember? And this next one is called The Case of the Open Door. Working calmly and efficiently, Greg Verner hanged Brendan Tom in the attic of Trom's rented house. It was not until Verner tried to shut the front door that he hit a snag. The lock was jammed. Better get out of here, he thought, casting anxious glances at the dense woods surrounding the house. Two hours later, he was driving back to the house with Dr. Halegian. Brendan's been morose since his divorce. I should have visited him, but nobody knew where he was hiding out. I got his address this afternoon when he telephoned me to say he was contemplating suicide. I thought you'd better come with me and perhaps have a talk with him. He said it was a white stucco house, 621 Delaware Avenue, over the phone, went on Werner. Here we are. Halegian left the car first, finding the front door ajar. He entered and switched on the lights. Five minutes later, the two men found Brendan Trom in the attic. As they stood silently staring at the body, a door chime sounded downstairs. With Halegian right behind him, Werner hastened to the back door. There stood a teenage girl. Mother asked me to return this bottle of milk to Mr. Trom, she said. Halegian took the milk, and after she had gone, he called the police. You'd better arrest Mr. Werner on suspicion of murder, he said when they arrived. Why? Pause for the answer. Although Werner carefully built up the impression that he had never visited the Trom house before, he knew while standing in the attic that the chime was from the back door. Okay. And this next one is called the case of the orange bird. For years, Mrs. Sidney, the wealthiest dowager in New York City, had vainly tried to outwit Dr. Halegian. As the famous criminologist selected a cigar from the tray held by the Sidney butler, a wicked gleam came into his hostess's eye. It was time for playing stump the detective. John DeMott, Paul Hoke, and Lee Roach were partners in a successful New York jewelry business, began Mrs. Sidney. Last January, they flew down to the Florida Keys to spend a month at DeMott's Lodge. One afternoon, DeMott took Hook and Abbott Fisherman, but a non-swimmer, out on his 40-foot cruiser. Roach, whose hobby was bird-watching, remained behind. Roach says he was sitting behind the lodge when he spied an exotic orange bird belonging to a species new to him fly by. He followed it to the front of the house and through binoculars watched it building a nest high in a palm tree. Quite by chance, he moved the binoculars out to the water and saw Demott and Huck struggling on the yacht. Roach says Demott shoved Huck overboard and held his head underwater. Demott claimed that Huck had leaned over the side to gap a fish and losing his balance fell into the ocean. He drowned before Demott could reach him. The coroner ascribed death to drowning. At the trial, it was simply DeMott's word against Roach's. The jury deliberated less than five minutes, concluded Mrs. Sidney. No doubt, my dear doctor, you won't need so long to realize who was lying. Halegian didn't. Do you? Pause for the answer. 
Although an experienced bird watcher, Roach didn't know his tropical flora. Obviously, he didn't watch a bird building his nest in a palm tree as he claimed. Palm trees don't have branches, only long slippery fronds, and birds can't perch, much, much less, much less nest on them. It's kind of a tongue twister. Okay, and the next one here is called The Case of the Overheard Killer. Steve Corrigan, a mad dog killer, was shot to death in a Detroit boarding house during a gun battle with police who acted on an anonymous telephone tip. Two days earlier, a man had held up a Toledo bank and slain two cashiers. A guard spotted a scar on the masked gunman's right hand. Within an hour, the police had the telltale description booming over the loudspeakers of every transportation center within a 50-mile radius of the crime. Everyone with an eye to collecting the well-publicized $50,000 reward began insisting he was the anonymous tipster. The Detroit police asked Dr. Halegian to screen the claimants. The first was Bill Kempton, who told his story confidently. Just as my brother Carl boarded the bus to Bowling Green, the description came over the, the depot's loudspeaker. Carl got a seat in the back, and as the bus started, he noticed a man with a scar on his right hand sitting midway up the bus. The man leaned over and said to the red-headed woman across the aisle, I'd better get off at the first stop and head for Detroit. Carl's a deaf mute and can read lips. He saw the scarred man pass the woman a note and say, meet me in two days at this address. Carl had me telephone the police anonymously when he got home. He had seen the red-haired the red -haired woman crumple the note after reading it and drop it on the floor. Carl was the last off the bus and he picked it up. Here it is. It's the address of the boarding house where the killer was shot by the police, all right, said Halegian, just as the newspapers gave it. Bring the next tipster, Sergeant. What was wrong with Kempton's story? Pause for the answer. The note was an obvious fake. Carl, the deaf mute, might be able to read lips and so know what the scarred man said, but Carl never could have attached the importance to his remarks unless he had heard Corrigan's description broadcast over the Depple loudspeakers as he boarded the bus. And this next one is called The Case of the Parked Car. The sleek foreign convertible was like many others in the mid-city garage, except for the dead man's brown shoes and socks protruding from the opened driver's door. He was J. William Clancy, New York's top expert on men's fashion. Inspector Winters told Dr. Halegian, I send for you because something is odd about this case. Here's what we've got, continued the inspector. Clancy had a date for 8 p.m. with Denise Mills, a model, two nights ago. When he didn't show up, she telephoned his roommate, Kurt Wagner. Wagner checked on Clancy's movements. Wagner turned up nothing and called us. After back-checking, we found Clancy's body. It looks like Clancy was about to take out his car for the date with Miss Mills when another car hit him and kept going. Clancy dragged himself to the telephone in his car but died before he could use it. Halegian bent over the body. He carefully studied the blood which had flowed from a corner of the dead man's mouth and dried upon his striped shirt and brown suit coat lapel. Notice his watch, said the inspector. It smashed. The hand stopped at 745. The medical examiner says he died about 
He died about 48 hours ago. That ties in. 48 hours ago, Clancy was headed for his 8 p.m. date with Miss Mills. Quite wrong, Inspector, said Halegian. The smashed watch is an inept attempt to misrepresent the time of death. Unquestionably, Clancy died at least two hours earlier. Halegian straightened and stepped from the body. The clumsy cover-up indicates Clancy was murdered. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer. Only a man ignorant of fashion would have worn brown shoes, brown suit, and a striped shirt for a date at 8 p.m. After dark, Clancy, the fashion expert, would have worn black shoes, white shirt, and a dark suit. Okay. And this one is called the case of the payroll truck. Driving through deserted farm country a few miles from Fort Olmsted, Dr. Halegian suddenly came upon an army truck that had crashed into a tree beside the road. As he stopped his car, a jeep came from the opposite direction, carrying two officers and two sergeants, all wearing sidearms. A sergeant leaped out of the jeep and ran to the truck. They've been shot, Major, he shouted. I'm a doctor, said Halegian. He opened the cab door. The driver was dead. The soldier beside him was dying. I can't do anything for them, murmured Halegian to the major who had hurried over. The famous sleuth saw the cross on the officer's collar. This is your work now, chaplain. The major nodded and moved to the dying man. The other officer, a captain, said to Halegian, That's the fort's payroll truck. The way I see it, those poor boys were ambushed, but the driver managed to keep going till he died. Sergeant, the captain said, get the money out of the truck and put it in the jeep. When the money had been transferred, the captain said, Chaplain, you'd better stay here. We'll help. We'll get help back to you as, as fast as we can. And don't trust anybody, you hear? The captain and the two sergeants sped off in the jeep. Halesian waited only until they were around a bend to flatten the chaplain with a straight right to the jaw. Why? Pause for the answer. Halegian realized the chaplain would shoot him and take off in his car the moment he saw his chance. The four soldiers were obviously imposters, as all were wearing sidearms, including the chaplain. But service chaplains are forbidden to carry weapons. And moving right along, this one is called the case of the phantom killer. This one gives me the shudders, admitted Sheriff Monahan. The killer operated on a split-second timetable, yet he apparently picked his victim at random. Brentwood Hills is just a two-minute stop on the express run to Kansas City, continued the sheriff. The killer got off the train and walked into the two-room station. Tom Doherty was inside his office with Reverend Archibald. The office is separated from the outer room or waiting room by a swinging door set two feet off the ground. The two men were standing close to it, reading a church pamphlet. From where he stood in the waiting room, the killer could see only the trouser cuffs and shoes of these two men, and both were wearing blue trousers and black shoes. Yet he put all three bullets on the right side of the door where Doherty was. The minister didn't hear a report which means that the killer either had a silencer or 
timed his shots with the screams of the locomotive whistle, or both. Doherty collapsed, and by the time Reverend Archibald had time to look, the train was pulling out. The killer had to be in on it since there wasn't anybody in sight. We checked with the railroad people. Nobody bought a ticket to Brentwood Hills. Nobody, as far as we could determine, got off or on there. So it comes up this way, concluded the sheriff heavily. A cycle picks a small town, slips off the train unnoticed, kills someone he never sees, and somehow slips on board again. We'll never get him in a million years. Quite wrong, Inspector, disagreed Helegian. After all, we don't have more than a dozen or so suspects to sift through. What did Helegian mean? And here's where we pause for the answer. Halegian knew that the killer in two minutes had been able to get on and off the train without attracting notice, know the duration of train whistles, and most revealing of all, identify his victim merely by glancing at his shoes. He was, therefore, a Pullman porter. Moving on, the next one is called The Case of the Phony Financier. Last week I pulled off my best act yet, groaned Cyril Mackin the backfiring lady killer. I can't figure out how Ginger Falk knew I was bluffing. Mackin flopped despondently into an armchair in Dr. Halegian's study and recounted his latest tale of curdled courtship. Ginger's father is head of affiliated banks of California. She's accustomed to million-dollar deals being closed on the telephone. I decided to trump anything she'd ever heard on Mr. Bell's business line, so... I had her meet me at noon for lunch in Balin's, the swankiest restaurant in Los Angeles. After we had ordered, I called for a table phone. I asked to talk to Northern Airlines at Kennedy Airport, New York. John Gotch, an old buddy, was at the other end of the line, speaking from Balin's kitchen. Page, Mr. Leonard Coffin, I said, it's urgent. After three minutes, John came on again as Coffin. We got the Western Award, I said. Tell Christophilus in Zurich the deal. Reoffer the bonds at 99.5% for the 15-year maturity. The selling commission of 1% on the long bonds and half percent on the short ought to net $3 million. Then I hung up. Coffin, I explained to Ginger, is taking the 1 p.m. flight to Zurich. By supper time, I should have the European cartel's answer. You were lucky commented Helegian. Miss Falk didn't throw something at you. What was Mackin's slip? Pause for the answer. Because of the three-hour difference in time between the coasts, Mackin's call made in Los Angeles around noon would have missed Coffin flying at 1 p.m. from New York by two hours. <laughs> Some of these are really funny. This next one is called The Case of the Post Office Box. Don't tell me Joey DeSantos just handed over the Ponfeld necklace to you, bellowed Inspector Winters. Nick the nose backed against the wall of the inspector's office. Now, wait, he begged. It wasn't like that. See, this key is to Joey's mailbox in the Maple Street Post Office. The greasy little informer shifted his feet nervously. You've been looking for the Ponfield necklace, ain't you? He asked. Old man Ponfield insured for a million. I bet the insurance company is breathing down your neck. The insurance people want the police to recover the necklace, admitted the inspector. What are you selling? The necklace, said Nick grandly. 
before the cops shot him onto the slab, Joey mailed the necklace to his postal box. Nuts, claimed the inspector. Are you telling me Joey just made you a present of his mailbox key? No, said Nick quickly. Last month when he was hiding after the Rockland job, he sent me out to the hardware store to have his car keys duplicated, gave me his whole key ring. I duplicated everything on it and kept the extras for myself, just in case. When Joey got riddled yesterday and the necklace ain't anywhere, I began to think. Sure enough, one of the keys I had made fits his mailbox. The necklace is in one of them insulated bags. Now I figure it's worth... Nick the Nose's voice halted in a gasp as the inspector lifted him by the seat of his pants. Dr. Halegian, who was coming into the office, held the door open wide for one of Nick's head-first departures. Why did Nick the Nose get the heave-ho? Pause for the answer. Nick the Nose struck out in stating he had the key to Joey's mailbox duplicated at a hardware store. No keysmith will duplicate a United States post office key. And rolling right along, this next one is called The Case of the Puzzled Hairdresser. I can't figure out who learned I was taking the week's receipts to the bank on Thursday, a day early, said Mr. John, the hairdresser. Every week for the past eight years, I've taken the money at noon on Friday. Stop worrying, said Dr. Halegian as he finished bandaging Mr. John's head. You're lucky to be alive. Whoever waylaid you in the alley must have used a piece of lead pipe. What I don't understand is who knew I was going and where, said Mr. John. Whom did you tell? Only my wife, Clara. At two o'clock, I told her I was going to the bank. Did anyone overhear you? There were three customers in the shop, new ones. I didn't even speak with them. Clara took care of two of them, and my brother Ted did the other. I recall all three women were seated under the hairdryers watching me when I spoke with Clara about going to the bank. Where was Ted? Out on a coffee break, replied Mr. John. It couldn't have been either Ted or Clara. If you're so positive, said Halegian thoughtfully, we have only one suspect. Who? Why, the one who couldn't possibly have overheard you if you screamed at the top of your lungs, replied Halegian. Whom did Halegian mean? Pause for the answer. None of the three women sitting under the hairdryers could have heard Mr. John tell his wife he was going to the bank. Hairdryers simply make too much noise. Therefore, Halegian knew it had to be the woman who was deaf and who could read lips. Okay. And this next one is called The Case of the Racketeer's Death. The life policy on Muggsy McGurk, the labor racketeer, has a no-murder clause, said Henderson, the insurance investigator. You mean that if it turns out someone killed him, your company won't have to pay a cent? Asked Dr. Halegian. Correct, acknowledged Henderson. That's why I need your help. I can only suspect murder. Here are the few facts I have. McGurk died on the train to Miami. He had imbibed heavily in the club car until midnight. Then, helped by a waiter, he staggered to his berth, a lower in car 1056, and lay down without undressing. In a drunken stupor, he accidentally asphyxiated himself by burying his head in the pillow, or so it would seem. 
would he, when he was found in the morning, continued Henderson, his mouth and nose were clear of the pillow. It is thought he rolled when the train made a jolting halt about 1 a.m. A conductor had stopped the train, pulled the emergency cord because he saw a man jumping off the last car. The man could have been McGurk's killer. Come into the next room, doctor. You'll see everything taken from McGurk's birth. Halegian viewed the articles piled on a square table. Besides the sheets, blankets, and a pillow belonging to the Pullman Company, there was a mound of McGurk's clothes, also the contents of his overnight bag. Among the latter were a pair of white pajamas, bedroom slippers, and a yellow bathrobe. Not much, conceded Henderson, to prove murder. One article proves it, corrected Halegian. What was the article? Pause for the answer. Halegian reasoned the killer had smothered McGurk with a pillow and then, fearing it, held his finger then fearing it held its fingerprints, took it with him. The article that gave the killing away was the pillow, the missing one. All train births are made up with two. Next one is called The Case of the Reluctant Witness. Dr. Halegian and Sheriff Monahan walked slowly down the path that stretched between James Ernst's newly painted rear porch and his tool shed in the backyard. From any place along this path, said Sheriff Monahan, Ernst could have seen Fred Culp being slain. He's our only possible witness, but he denies seeing anything. What do you make of these? asked Halegian, pointing to the drops of white paint that had fallen in a line along the path. Ernst, answered the sheriff, had finished painting his porch and was bringing the paint can to the shed about the time the killing took place. Ernst claims he didn't realize the can had sprung a leak until he got into the tool shed. Halegian examined the paint drops more carefully. From the porch to about midpoint along the path, the paint had fallen into nearly circular drops every three feet. From midpoint to the tool shed, the drops were spaced about nine feet apart and were longer and narrower. Halegian was not surprised to find the padlock hanging from the inside latch of the tool shed. Ernst is absolutely terrified, said the sheriff. He claimed he clammed up tight. If he knows more than he's telling, I'll have to prove he saw Fred Culp slain to make him talk. No doubt he fears the killer's vengeance if he admits having if he admits having seen the killer, said Halegian. But he saw it all right. How did Halegian know? Pause for the answer. The drops of paint told Halegian that Ernst was midway along the path when he saw the killing. From that point to the two shed, where the latch on the inside indicated he had locked himself in, the drops were spaced farther apart and were longer and narrower, showing he had suddenly broken into a run. Next, we have the case of the rescue at sea. Thank heaven you saw me exclaimed Tom Bond as he feebly helped make fast his better yawl to Dr. Halegian's chartered fishing boat. Halegian reached over the side and assisted the bedraggled yachtsman aboard. Bond staggered into the shade of the cabin and sagged upon a berth. He removed his cap to wipe the perspiration from his brow, revealing a bald, freckled head. Drink this, said Halegian, holding up a cup of water. Bond gulped it frantically, asked for a second, and when he had downed it, told of his ordeal. Ben Page and I were sailing for Bimini when the storm hit us. 
The sails, rudder, and radio went in, went in the first five minutes. We barely managed to keep afloat. We drifted five days, lost. Three days ago, our fresh water supply gave out. Ben went crazy with the heat and thirst. He started to drink the ocean water. I tried to restrain him. I hit him. He, he struck his head against the starboard rail. He's dead. It's my fault. Halegian climbed into Bond's disheveled yacht. In the little cabin, he found Ben Page laid out on his back, dead. The criminologist studied the bruises on Page's jaw and the one at the base of his skull. Back on the fishing boat, he warned Bond grimly. You're going to have to tell the police a better tale than what you've just told me. Why didn't Halegian believe Bond? Pause for the answer. Halegian knew that Bond's story of hitting Page and accidentally killing him while restraining him from drinking ocean water was false. If the supply of fresh water had given out three days ago, as Bond claimed, he would have been dehydrated and therefore could not have wiped the perspiration from his brow. Up next, we have the case of the sealed room. On the evening of April 1st, Dr. Halegian was dining with Octavia when he saw a waiter slip on the glassy surface of the dance floor and land amid a welter of broken dishes, stuffed lobster, and very tossed salad. Puts me in mind of the famous sealed room case, said Halegian. Want to hear about it? I'd rather dance, said Octavia, but go ahead. H. Henderson Colborn III, the eccentric millionaire, began Halegian, had a windowless room in his mansion sealed off. In this impregnable repository, he kept only one item, the greatest treasure of his entire fortune, the sarcophagus of Tutomkin IV, pharaoh of Egypt. One night, Calborn heard a noise within the room. It sounded like somebody was moving the, the sarcophagus. The next morning, he had welders burn open the six-inch steel door. Lo, the sarcophagus was gone. Rushing into the room, Calborn slipped and fell flat on the floor. From this uncommon position, he could closely observe another phenomenon. The entire floor had been freshly varnished. He called me immediately. Examining the room, I perceived the difficulty of anyone entering by the steel door and then vanishing with the four-ton sarcophagus. When I asked Calborn if he had any enemies, he named two, Klondike Kate and Indian Joe. Now concluded Halegian, keeping in mind today is April Fool's Day, can you tell me how I deduced which was the thief? Being a fool doesn't help me, sighed Octavia. Which one? Can you guess? Pause for the answer. Indian Joe, the varnishing American. Ugh. Okay, and moving along, we have the case of the shattered door. The six foot four, 200 pound, 240 pound body of Earl Moon lay on the tile veranda amid a welter of shattered glass. Dr. Halegian studied the left side of Moon's jaw, which was bruised outside and bloody inside from a cut caused by two broken teeth. The bruise on the back of the head showed where Moon had struck the tiles. The back of the dead man's sport jacket was stitched with glass splinters. Apparently, somebody punched Moon awfully hard on the side of the jaw, mused Halegian. Moon was thrown backward, and he crashed through the closed sliding glass door. Falling, he struck his head on the veranda tiles and died of a broken neck. 
That confirms the account we have from Buster Epps, a neighbor, said Inspector Winters. Epps moved from behind the inspector and stared in disbelief at the body. He still seemed in a state of shock. I was tending my roses about half an hour ago when I noticed Moon and a stranger standing near this glass door. The stranger was not quite so tall as Moon, but just as broad, and he handled himself like a professional boxer. They seemed to be quarreling, but the door was shut and I couldn't overhear distinctly, continued Epps. Suddenly, Moon swung his fist. The stranger sidestepped expertly and hooked the left to Moon's jaw. Moon went crashing through the glass. He struck his head. I could hear the crack. The stranger fled immediately. I called the police when I couldn't overtake him. Now, now, Mr. Epps, said Helegian, suppose you tell us what really happened. Why didn't Helegian believe Epps? Pause for the answer. The stranger could not possibly have hit Moon on the left side of the jaw with the left hook. Had Moon exposed his left side, the natural blow would have been a right across, would have been a right cross or a straight right. And the next one we have is, is the case of the stamp collector. I came in to help Mr. Dunning to bed, said Brock, the aged family servant. I found him like this and summoned you from the living room immediately. The 85-year-old John Dunning, a noted philatelist, lay slumped over his desk, dead of a blow which had been struck to the base of the skull within the past five minutes. When I entered, I thought I heard a rear door close, said Brock. It leads to the back stairway. Halegian examined the five objects on the desk. There were a pair of tweezers, a stamp album, a stamp catalog, and a bottle of benzene with an eyedropper for use in detecting watermarks. A quartz floor lamp cast eerie ultraviolet rays over the dead man's left shoulder. Mr. Dunning had been appraising a stamp collection for a friend this evening, Brock explained. Halegian walked out of the room onto the balcony overlooking the living room where the costume party given by Dunning's granddaughter was in sway. Who benefits from his will? Why, I do, replied Brock, and everyone at the party. Halegian studied the costumed merrymakers till his eye fell upon a young man dressed as Sherlock Holmes, his deerstalker's cap Tipped rakishly, he was examining the eyes of a pretty Salome through a large magnifying glass while blowing smoke from a meerschaum pipe. Call the police, Halegian told Brock, while I detain Mr. Holmes for questioning. How come? Pause for the answer. Halegian realized the murder weapon was the one object missing from the stamp expert's desk, a magnifying glass. Up next, we have the case of the sticky brush. Thanks for the lift into town, Dr. Halegian, said Joe May. Mind stopping at Owl Poles? Not a bit, replied Halegian, turning into a side road that led to Poles' house of red brick with white wood porch, steps, and windows. I've been meaning to contact Al for two days, said May. I need the rent he borrowed last week. Halegian had barely brought the car to a halt when May hopped out. Won't be a second, he called, racing across the lawn and leaping over the steps. He skidded on the slate floor of the porch, but righted himself quickly. Getting no answer to the doorbell, he walked to a window and rapped on a pane. Al, he shouted. Al? Suddenly, jumping off the porch, he screamed. Dr. Halegian, be 
behind the shrubs. To the left of the porch, behind a long row of hibiscus set four feet from the brick wall, lay the body of Al Pole. A six-foot stepladder had overturned on him. A can of white paint had spilled over his work shoes. Neck broken, said Helegian, about six hours ago. The famous sleuth fingered the bristles of the paintbrush near Al's right hand. Sticky, he muttered. Walking to the porch, he touched the white wood supports, the front door, the four steps, and the window sills. Tacky, he said. Al must have just finished painting them this morning when he met death. The next day, after Joe May had been arrested, Halegian told Sheriff Monahan, May thought that by pretending to discover the body with me, he cleared himself of suspicion. What was May's error? Pause for the answer. By saying, I've been meaning to contact Al for two days, May expected to establish the fact that he hadn't been near the pole house during the killing. Yet the fact that he twice jumped over the steps and knocked on the window pane rather than the door revealed that he knew the steps and door had been newly painted. Okay. Up next, we have the case of the stolen Rubens. Unable to sleep, Dr. Halegian was walking about the grounds of his host, Percy Kilbrew, former right-handed pitching great, when he noticed a limousine by the back door. Suddenly, a man fully clothed stepped out, stepped out the door and passed the driver what appeared to be a painting. Then the man dashed into the house and the car roared off, bowling over a garbage can with enough noise to awaken the dead. In the 4 a.m. darkness, Halegian could not identify the men or the car. But the fate of the Rubens oil was plain enough. It was missing from the living room wall. Halegian sprinted upstairs to his host's room and received a prompt, Come in! to his knock. Kilbrew stood, stood half-clothed by a rumpled bed, his right leg in his trousers and his left leg out. I heard the clatter and was just getting dressed to investigate, he said. What happened? The Rubens has been stolen, said Halegian. Kilbrew finished pulling on his trousers and followed Halegian downstairs barefooted. In a few minutes, Kilbrew's three other house guests descended the stairs. John Ward, the art critic, wore an oriental robe over black silk pajamas. Marty Latham, the singer, wore an old-fashioned nightshirt and cap. Everett Miloski, a painter, wore only tattered pajama bottoms. The Rubens is heavily insured, said Kilbrew, but I don't care about the money. I want the painting back. You don't have a worry on that score, Halegian assured him. Whom did Halegian suspect? Pause for the answer. Kilbrew of wanting the insurance money and the painting. Although he claimed to be just getting dressed, he was really getting undressed since his left leg was out of his trousers. A right-handed man usually takes his right leg out first when undressing. He invariably puts his left leg in first when dressing. I'll have to check that out. I don't know about that. <laughs> but in any case, moving right along, the next one is called The Case of the Suicide Room. Sir Cecil Brookfield pulled back a massive door that opened, that opened off one of the arched corridors in his 600-year-old castle in Wales. Dr. Halegian, a weekend guest, peered down into the darkness. A room with four walls and no floor, said Sir Cecil, or rather a floor 100 feet below the threshold. 
The room was designed to dispose in secret of troublesome vassals, explained Sir Cecil. Later, when the beautiful wife of the First Lord Brookfield died in the plague, a grief-stricken young, young forester hurled himself to his doom here. A nasty legend developed from the forester's death, added Sir Cecil slowly. It is that a young man will jump in the reign of every fourth baron. I am the fourth since the last suicide. Sir Cecil shoved the heavy door shut. I've ordered a mason from the village. He'll be here tomorrow to seal off the floor. Halegian's bedroom was three doors from the suicide room. As he was retiring for the night, he heard an eerie dull thud. It could mean only one thing. He hastened to the corridor. Sir Cecil was returning toward the suicide room. Together, the two men swung open the massive door. Sir Cecil played a flashlight down into the dark pit. The beam revealed the body of a young man. Richie, my wife's solicitor, gasped Sir Cecil. Why should he take his own life? He didn't, corrected Helegian. He was pushed. How did Helegian know? Pause for the answer. The door to the suicide room was found closed. As the room had no floor, it would have been impossible for Richie to have closed the massive door from the inside and then turned and jumped. And this next one is called The Tale of the, the Case of the Telltale Clock. Police found the body of Buffalo Finn in his tenement room. He had been strangled by the electric cord of his alarm clock. Set for 7.30, the clock had stopped at 7. Inspector Winters had Pete the Hangman scones, Buffalo's inveterate foe, picked up for questioning. The Hangman claimed that on the morning of Buffalo's murder, he had been in the middle of a three-day poker game with underworld friends. The friend swore he never left the hotel room. A week passed without a new lead. Then Nick the Nose wheeled, wheedled his way into, into the inspector's office. The greasy little informer grinned. I got something. It had better be good, warned the inspector. The last five times you got the boot. I got a witness to Buffalo's murder, announced Nick smugly. Broadway Ben. Ben, said Nick, had a room down the hall from Buffalo. He was passing Buffalo's room when he sees Buffalo's door ajar. He hears nothing at first but the tickling of Buffalo's but the ticking of Buffalo's alarm clock. And suddenly he don't even hear that. Then Ben hears a sound he don't like to hear at seven in the morning or at any time else. He hides in a doorway at the end of the hall. Two minutes later, he sees the hangman scurry out of Buffalo's room and race downstairs. Ben is so scared after he reads what happened to Buffalo that he ain't looked at an alarm clock for a week. He's hiding, but I can take you to him for five grand. He'll testify. I don't pay for perjury, growled the inspector. He never improves, sighed Halegi and entered the inspector's office and holding the door wide for Nick's flying exit. Why was Nick booted? Pause for the answer. Nick made too much of the ticking of the alarm clock, whose electric cord had been used to strangle Buffalo Finn. Alas for Nick, electric clocks don't tick. And this next one is called The Case of the Unused Seatbelt. 
when Inspector Winter slammed on the brakes, Dr. Halegian would have been pitched through the windshield before his seatbelt. The reason for the inspector's sudden stop was horribly evident. A red sports car had come racing around the hairpin turn on the mountain road ahead. Out of control, the car had crashed through the guardrail. The impact didn't stop the car, but it flung the driver straight up. He seemed to hang in the air a moment before plunging out of sight. Halegian and the inspector scrambled down the 200-foot precipice. The driver's body was a shattered mass of broken bones and blood. About 100 feet beyond, the sports car lay on its side, a total wreck. Strange, muttered the inspector, pointing to the seatbelt, obviously unused, which lay in the fresh blood that covered the driver's bucket seat. I don't doubt even with a seat, I don't doubt that even a seatbelt could have saved his life, Halegian said. I'd better telephone the state police, said the inspector. It looks like one more traffic fatality for the year. Do you think he fell asleep at the wheel? No, said Halegian. He was murdered. Why murder? Pause if you want to try to figure out the answer here. Which is the fact that blood soaked the driver's seat through, though he had been cast free of the car when it hit the rail, indicated that he had bled before the accident, i.e. he had been killed and placed in the car, which had then been sent down the mountain road. And up next here, we have the case of the warehouse murder. I heard a man scream twice, said Bob Lovell, an unemployed dog trainer. Naturally, I stopped and looked through the ground floor window of the Universal Tire Company warehouse. I saw Mike Denton dragging a man toward a stack of white wall tires, maybe 10 or 12 feet high. I telephoned the cops right away. You didn't go inside the warehouse? Asked Inspector Winters. No, why, I wasn't, I wasn't ever near the building before, retorted Bob. I was just out for a stroll. So what happens to a public-spirited citizen? He, he gets thrown in jail. Denton is your man, not me. The inspector nodded patiently. To the officer at the door, he said, take Lavelle back and bring in Mike Denton. Denton, a laundry worker, admitted being inside the warehouse. I got an anonymous telephone call asking me to come there, he said. The door was open, so I went in. I don't know nothing about a murder. Mel Capone's, Mel Capone's body stabbed eight times was found inside a 12-foot-high stack of white wall tires in the warehouse, said the inspector. The reason we found the body, continued the inspector, was that the killer grew sloppy. He stacked the tires above Capone in a leaning column. The warehouse manager says he has his men pile the tires in perfect columns. I didn't kill Capone, blurted Denton. I'm being framed. That night, the inspector related the case to Dr. Halegian. The warehouse workers, said the famous sleuth, have picked out the killer for you, inspector. What did Halegian mean? Here's where you pause if you want to think about the answer, which is, Lavelle said he'd never been near the warehouse before, yet he knew the tires toward which Capone was being dragged were white walls. From the window, he couldn't have seen anything but the treads, since the tires were stacked 10 or 12 feet high by the warehouse workers in perfect columns. Up next, we have the case of the whispering finger. 
A policeman patrolling Midland Park heard the two shots and racing toward the sounds found the body of Willard Wilson sprawled on a little used path near the boat basin. Wilson was dead of two bullet wounds in the head. Sonny Dobine, an ex-convict seen in the park at the time of the murder, was held overnight by police but released for lack of evidence. The dead man's widow immediately offered a $50,000 reward for the arrest of the killer. The reward brought Nick the Nose, nostrils fluttering to the scent of $50,000 into the office of Inspector Winters, who is discussing the case with Dr. Halegian. I got a witness, says Sonny Dobine. Fingered, fingered Wilson, announced the greasy little informer. You always have a witness for a price, snapped the inspector. For 50 grand, you ought to have a dozen. This is on the level, insisted Nick. Listen, my witness was in the park when Wilson was killed, he sees two men on a bench. One of them, Sonny Dobine, whispers to the other, Wilson always takes this path. My witness thinks it's kind of odd Dobine should whisper something like that, but he keeps walking. Then he reads about the murder in the papers. He must have heard the two shots, growled the inspector. Why didn't he speak up right away? My witness is deaf, but he reads lips good replied Nick quickly. He can testify to what Dobine told the other man, the gunman, I figure, and the jury will... Nick the Nose finished the sentence out in the hall where the inspector threw him. Why? Pause here for the answer. Nick's alleged witness was deaf and couldn't hear two shots, yet he remembered that Dobine said to the gunman because he whispered. Ah, poor Nick. Okay, the next one is called The Case of Willie the Wisp. Dr. Halegian was vacationing in Europe when Count Schwinn, head of customs in France, requested help on a perplexing problem of suspected smuggling. Schwinn had scarcely entered Halegian's hotel suite when he blurted, Are you acquainted with Eugene W. McNally, better known as Willie the Wisp? asked Halegian. He fenced diamonds in America for years and never got caught. That's the man, replied Schwinn. He's got a new game. Six months ago, he showed up at our customs post in Durian, driving a new black convertible Fiorda, a foreign car that costs $11,000. Naturally, we checked every inch of it, nothing. But each of his three pieces of luggage had a false bottom. Schwinn shook his head in exasperation. And the false bottoms were three jars, one filled with molasses, one with ground oyster shells, and one with bits of colored glass. We couldn't hold him for hiding such things, naturally. Now, twice a month, here comes a big, black, expensive Fiorda into the country at Durian. Willie again. Hidden in his bags are the jars filled with the same curious contents, molasses, glass, and shells. The brazen crook just sits, just sits, and smirks at my customs men. They're forced to admit him into the country, concluded Schwinn. Molasses, shells, and colored glass, mused Halegian. What do they add up to? cried Schwinn. What's he smuggling? Halegian lit a pipe and drew upon it reflectively. At length, he grinned. Deuced clever fellow, Willie. What was Willie smuggling? Pause if you want to figure the answer here. Willie the Wisp, a man with a shady reputation, knew he couldn't pass customs regularly without soon arousing suspicion, and he therefore created some. 
The jars and their contents, which baffled deduction, made sense to Helegian as decoys. Hence, Willie was smuggling black convertible Fiorda automobiles. <laughs> okay. And this is the last one. It's called The Case of the Wooden Bridge. Archie Tate, mayor of Hayes, collapsed in the reviewing stand at the Veterans Day Parade just as the Army drill team marched past. Tate died within the hour of a bullet wound inflicted by a high-powered high rifle, Sheriff Monahan told Dr. Halegian the next day. Who hated Tate enough to kill him, said Halegian. Orf Prill, maybe. I took a statement. The sheriff lifted a piece from his desk and read Prill's words. I was resting under the trees near the old wooden bridge when the army drill team passed over it. They were a sight to see, stepping in perfect unison, rifles shining and buttons glistening in the overhead sun. Prill, said the sheriff, claims he lay near the bridge and didn't walk the half mile into town till night. There wasn't anybody out there to, to verify his story, but nobody saw him in town either. Why did the drill team cross the bridge on foot? It's too rickety for those heavy army vehicles, so Lieutenant Cord had his men walk across, said the sheriff. They joined the parade behind the high school band around noon. You think Prill knew beforehand the route the drill team was to take into town and made up an alibi about being there all afternoon? Asked Halegian. The sheriff nodded. I believe he lied about seeing the soldiers cross the bridge. By then, he had to be holed in town ready to shoot, ready to shoot Tate. But, concluded the sheriff, his story about the bridge is so simple it can't be disproved. Halegian disagreed. Do you? And here's where you pause to try to come to the conclusion, which is nobody of soldiers ever steps in perfect unison across a rickety old wooden bridge, as Prill claimed, for fear of setting up vibrations that might collapse the structure. Lieutenant Cord would have ordered a route step at the bridge. And that is the final mystery and Donald Sobo's two-minute mysteries. I thought that would just be kind of fun as we get back into things after my short hiatus. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I really appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to answer the poll. I'm just trying to figure out uh, what best to bring you in the coming months in terms of uh, classic literature. So if you would, please just take a minute to answer the poll. I would really, really appreciate it. And also you can always write to me at Carla reads the classics at gmail.com. And if you are so inclined, if you're feeling generous today and you want to offer a tip, no amount is too small. You can send that to cash app Carla Reads, or if you prefer PayPal, it's Carla underscore J-O-H at yahoo.com, and you will find this information in the episode details. And I always forget to mention that I do have a merchandise store in the event you want t-shirts or hoodies or stickers or anything like that. So I will also uh, put the link to the store in the episode details. Thanks guys so much. I really appreciate you listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. <laughs>